0: How you doing? All right. Yourself? Great. Really? Well, Good.
1: I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like a Woody Allen line. <laughs> I, went I know we're, I went no, we're not to, supposed to talk about Woody Allen anymore, but it's a Woody Allen on. line. I
0: went back to being honest. Well, you know what? Yeah, it, yeah exactly. There's so many... Uh, you know i know the, Mike, the michael jackson is the celebrity of the moment who because of this hbo documentary there's a, a, a serious and, and you know correct discussion about you know mm-hmm. hey what do we, you know about his
2: legacy well, and, and whether you know, we're allowed to yeah, listen can, to the music anymore. Can we still listen whatever. to his music?
0: Yeah, exactly. Can you yeah. still play Michael Jackson? Well, that's yeah. the
2: wrong way to phrase it, I guess. Like, can you personally, I think is like right. the right way to phrase it. Like, can you personally justify it, you know? Right. Uh, I think that's the question we're all having to ask ourselves. All right, I was out with
0: friends over the weekend and we were at an establishment and, you know, um, they were playing Michael Jackson music. I didn't even really notice it cuz Michael Jackson music to me is just one of, you know, you just hear it all the time. I wasn't really thinking about it, but somebody sure. was like, "Ooh, kind of awkward." And then, you know, it is, but it's like you want so do you do you even want to play it let's say you own a restaurant. Do you play mm-hmm. Michael Jackson music if you know, you just don't want make people thinking about stuff like that. But on the other hand, it's right. some of people's favorite music of all time. It's, it's mm-hmm. a tough decision, you know. And
2: yeah, it's hard, I think, with music and movies, because, you know, creative works in general, because our, we attach our own memories to those things and our, our own meanings to them, and which is good. That's how art should be. You know, we, we sort of attach yeah. things that happen in our lives or people or memories or whatever to them, and, um, you know, they become greater than, than what they were created for. Like, the person... Who sang the song had their purpose and their reason for singing the song, but it may mean something completely different to us. So, I think it becomes much harder to like to then think about how to separate those things. Um, with somebody living, I think it's almost easier because you're able to say, "Well, I don't want this person who did these horrific things to continue to benefit," hmm. you know, from from this relationship. But I don't know; it's it's a tough one. Yeah,
0: uh, and then there's you know, uh, yeah, like let's say someone like Kevin Spacey. You know who's who was so uh, the allegations against him were so significant and compelling that they literally took a movie what was the name of that movie I forget it was a Ridley Scott movie uh, where he played like John Paul Getty I mean it was Ooh. like a, it
2: it didn't have a the name wasn't very evocative of the, no. of the subject matter so I can't recall but the movie was effectively in the
0: can and was only a few weeks out from coming out and they Reshot the movie with a new Actor Christopher Plummer in the role Mm -hmm. Which is Remarkable and I remember watching The movie uh, Which is a spoiler (laughs) Well I guess because they took him out of the movie I didn't face any sort of moral Conundrum over whether to watch the movie So I I guess that's not a spoiler but I watched the movie and It was immersive enough because Ridley Scott is super super Talented one of my all time favorite directors that mm-hmm. i i i tried to watch thinking can i tell that this was reshot without Plummer? like everything is, right. you know like it, right. it, it, single shots of Plummer as opposed to two shots yeah. with him and other characters and
2: like oh the wig is different
0: <laughs> well not the wig but just the shots you know like how many of them are two shots where you can tell you know
1: uh-huh. either right.
0: he is in the room with the other actors or they've sufficiently done special effects to convince you he's in the room with the other actors and how many of them are, it's a one shot on his character cut to the opposite angle on the other characters. And they just took shots where they were playing against Spacey and used you know, and and mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You, if you keep your eye open for that, and you just kind of, if you've ever edited, even just edited video, not like serious films, you, you kind of know what that's like. If you try to just edit a conversation where there's, let's say, three shots. There's one with both characters, one on Michael or Matthew, and one on John, and then you intercut between those three, um, uh, uh, shots. And mm-hmm. I, I but it, I, I got lost. The movie was good enough that I got lost of, to keeping track of it, which is, you know, the way it should be. But there were some where I could tell is like, I don't think this was supposed to be so one shot, a shot, B shot. I think there should have been more of a master shot. But but mm-hmm. eventually you lose mm-hmm. it
2: right right yeah you you sense like the tempo of the conversation says hey there should be some sort of you know kind of establishing shot relating the characters one another but it's not there
0: right and then what else was spacey was spacey there was the whole thing where he was the star co-star i should say of house of cards uh Mm -hmm. and they had one season to go when the scandal broke and you know he he was alive at the end of the last season and then they just decided he was dead to do the last season and um, didn't seem to go very well in terms of mm-hmm. popularity. But what to do, you know? They also, you know, they're in a uh, caught between a rock and a hard pace, you know? Yep. I don't know. I, I tend to, I've mentioned this on the show before, I tend to disassociate the artist from the art. And so, like, I have no problem watching Kevin Spacey movies, but I also understand why they're not making new Kevin Spacey movies,
1: you know? Mm-hmm.
0: I don't have a problem listening to Michael Jackson music, but... Yeah. Yeah.
2: I I don't think there's any hard, fast rule for for me. I mean, I think a large part of it for me is is sort of, you know, I listen to the way people think about it and the way that they're, they talk about it and how it feels to them. And I try to, I try to always work from that angle. And I know (laughs) it's weird because like the older I get, and I don't think this is purely just age, but it is certainly an experience based thing. But the older I get, the less likely I am to just say things. You know, you know what I mean, right? Like you get, you just become more cognizant of. Power is the the wrong word. You know, we we do have some sort of small power in the in the platform that we you know that we have in terms of media or whatever the case may be. But even just as a person, on a person to person basis, you have some sort of power based on like your reputation or you know your cachet with your friends or audience or whoever it is you're talking to. And I just think that the as I get older, I realize that. When I was younger, I was really full of shit, (laughs) and you know, it's just like you know, we're we're all we're all full of it to some degree because we're figuring it out as we go. You know, sometimes we're we're saying things about what we believe and we're figuring out what we believe as we're saying it, you know. It's not like we've spent hours pondering this thing and have like a concise opinion on every matter, right? We're all figuring things out as we go. I just figure I just find out that like as I'm older, the more I like instead of taking a hard fast, you know, opinion on things or even making sure that I have all of these opinions ready, I just listen more and talk yeah. less about those things, you know. And that I think is one of those topics that I I still am doing a lot of that. I just don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't have any sort of hard, fast rule. I think there are some things that I still enjoy personally, but that I would never go like, oh, I still watch this and you should too. You know, yeah. I would never do that yeah. you know, about to those about those things.
0: Yeah, I I kind of there's a part of me. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> There's a part of me that thinks the whole the best thing going on to me is the cultural change At a very deep level across multiple industries and it's spreading like wildfire to every industry, which is that when people do bad things to others the people who had the bad things done to them should be have a a venue to speak up report it have it dealt with in a fair way and and You know, almost all of these things have been – the root problem – I don't want to say one's a bigger problem than the other. Like the bad behavior is bad behavior and should be punished. But the structural problem is that in all of these industries, there was so much set up to keep people from reporting it. And if they did report it, report it to bury it. And punish them or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. to, so as to send a message to other people who, who suffered, you know, similar uh, harassment or abuse or whatever it is, um, you know, to send a message to keep quiet. And like the dam yeah. is, has burst on that. Like it hasn't finished or maybe the dam has, you know, severely cracked and there's spouts of water coming out and it's inevitable that the rest of it's going to come down. And I think that's a good thing. I feel like sometimes people, you know, the, the sort of uh, want to shaming you for watching Woody Allen movies is a little bit sanctimonious. And it's the person telling you that trying to inject themselves into the story, whereas they really had no, no part in it,
2: mm-hmm. you know. But, Virtue signaling, right and to some degree, yeah, right. Like
0: if you don't want to watch Woody Allen movies, that's you know, to me, that's that's the line that I I I wouldn't feel comfortable crossing. Is is telling other people not to enjoy Woody Allen movies or Michael Jackson music or Kevin Spacey movies mm-hmm. or what have you. But mm-hmm. certainly, as a personal choice, it might be.
2: Yeah, I think that's valid. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't feel that imposing your Worldview on other people is ever the right way to go, but I think, in certainly in terms of moral or ethical issues, it's in fact the worst thing you could do. Yeah. It's actually harmful because it it does not create any sort of lasting you know change of lens for that person so if you're like oh hey here let me explain why i don't let me kind of give you my my pov on this and let me explain why it's you know problematic or why i have a personal issue with it or my personal connection or whatever and and that is far more likely i think to end up with a scenario where you have somebody going, you know what, I see my lens is a different color now or it's yeah. shifted in its angle or viewpoint yeah. rather than some, some sort of thing where you're shaming somebody because I think you end up having, it ends up having a lot of negative effect. And while you may cauterize the problem in the near term, it doesn't cure the infection yeah. or whatever, if you want to call it.
0: You know? Yeah. Update from, uh, from the control booth, the movie is, was called uh, All the Money in the World. That was the Ridley Scott film where they raced Kevin Spacey and replaced him with Christopher Plummer. Not surprised they didn't remember the name. Yeah, that's actually it's not a very good title, in my opinion. A Little generic. Almost sounds like a James Bond movie, like one of the one of the uh, Brosnan uh, Bond films. Right.
2: Right. <laughs> like, could you? Yeah. Could you trick? Could you trick? Theme song by Ariana Grande.
0: How many people could you <laughs> trick into believing that they saw a Brosnan Braun film called All the Money in the World? I'll bet you you could get a lot of it. You
2: might get me. 30%. A- <laughs> thirty forty 40%. <maybe. laughs> More.
0: Uh, like, there were at least two that were close to that. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. God. I hope there's somebody from, like, Eon Productions who's listening, who listens to the show, and they're like, damn, that would have been a good title.
2: <laughs> <laughs> If only. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, it's uh, uh, we just hit the uh, the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web, which is uh, yes, we did. Kind of crazy. Um, I, I, I certainly never heard of it in uh, 1999 or
1: 1989. Mm-hmm.
0: I forget when I heard of it though. I, I, I believe it was what was the app before Nets, Netscape? Was it called Mozilla? I forget what mm. it was called. Mosaic? Mosaic, that's it, Mosaic. Mm-hmm. So I remember Mosaic like 1.0. Mm-hmm. Obviously there were other people who were on it bef- before that, but 30 years yeah. since. Netscape the
2: was my first browser. Um I'm almost positive and I and once again I can't I can't pinpoint it and I think I probably could like if I sat down and talked to a bunch of people, but um or not a bunch but a few key people, you know, who were who sort of introduced me to it, but it had to be about 92 for me, maybe 91. Um, simply because that was when I got my first modem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what I remember, and I've said this before on the show, it's a good thing. I wasn't, uh, I was very young at the time, so maybe I'd be forgiven, but I would have been, uh, I would have been eating a lot of my own claim chowder on the future of the web (laughs) where (laughs) I, I thought that the web, I thought it was an interesting demo, uh, this is in the Mosaic era, but I was mm-hmm. like, but it was so slow that I was like, who the hell would ever use this? Cause everything I was doing on the internet was all terminal based. You know, you would open up right. a, a Z term. Z term was the app on the Mac where you could dial in to the school modems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And even if you didn't have a great modem, even if you had like a 9,600 baud modem or even 2,400 would be 2,400 was like slow enough where even if you had a clean connection and you, if you were a good typist you could probably outtype the buffer. 9600 was like <laughs> got a, if you got a clean right. phone call everything you did was fast. And mm-hmm. that to me was the most important thing. I was, you know, simultaneously a Mac native Mac app UI snob for all of my right. regular computing and a total terminal snob for internetting for lack of a better right. word. Because it was fast and it just seemed like this is what, and it was also what the internet at the time was, was built for. It was built for Mm -hmm. these pure text connections, but then you could like log in and the longest part was just waiting for the modem to connect type Elm. All of a sudden the whole screen was filled with your email. You could see everything that was new and then you could just Mm -hmm. sort of down arrow, right arrow, return, you know, a couple of keys to, you know, if you only had like three new messages, you'd be in and out and you'd be done. And whereas, like, if you tried firing up Mosaic at the time, (laughs) like you, you'd watch every. Even if you had a clean connection, you'd watch every page paint in. Mm -hmm. Yep,
2: (laughs) top to bottom or interleave. Right, interleave line over line. Right, you'd be like, ah, fifty percent of the lines we just rendered them. Now we're gonna go back and render the other fifty (laughs) percent. Well, didn't wasn't that what we
0: did with? We had like, uh, was was it GIF or JPEG that had the uh, you could PNG, I believe. No, this is before PNG. It was, oh, PNG wasn't okay. invented yet. PNG was invented in the mid nineties. The, I don't want to go on a long sidetrack on it, but the backstory of yeah. PNG is that Unis, what's, UNA? Oh Christ, they used to be a big computer company. It started with Una. I was going to say Unicef, but that's the charity. But,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There was a
0: company that held a it's patent my on data the, banks. Uh, there was a company that held a patent on the GIF format and okay. they never enforced it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I will put a link to the Wikipedia error, the GIF. Uh, let's see what they say. But anyway, they held a patent, but they didn't enforce it. And so the various web browsers used it because it was very efficient for certain images that JPEG wasn't for. Um, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: and then it took off, and all of a sudden they they had a very strong interest in enforcing the patent before it expired. And it was such an old it's thing bad. that it was uh, – It. It was expiring soon. And so Ping was mm-hmm. sort of a let's save the internet and come up with a replacement for Ping that is uh, Unisys. That's the name of the company. Um, gotcha. Sorry for uh, – I apologize to every listener who thought of it instantly and was dying while I, while I waited for it. <laughs> Somewhere out there is somebody yeah. who, al- who also knew all I the money that. in the world right away and, and- – right wanted right. to ring in so i've got two strikes yeah, exactly somebody's ready to stop listening to this episode already
2: you get i bet you you get a lot of the tweets where people aren't done listening and they're like, oh yeah they're tweeting you the name of things yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't mind
0: i don't mind keep tweeting
2: them. no That's yeah, it's totally fine i actually i like, enjoy you know,
0: I'm like an engaged audience right exactly uh, it is a reason though i probably should host a live show all the time with an audience so they can sh- shout answers at me <laughs> I guess the answer, I guess some of the shows do the IRC thing and people type answers, but.
2: Yeah, I can't remember what it, I was filming an episode of The Computer Show one time, um, the live one, uh, The Computer Show by um, yeah Sandwich Video, uh, Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Adam Lizagor, and it's a great show, super fun. And he was very kind and did a live show in SF and I was one of the, non-jokey, you know, serious straight man guests um that they had on the show How and is I, this? I I don't know. I don't know I don't know if you were. you probably weren't in town. It was in SF. Uh, yeah, but it wasn't was in particular recorded? did event it ever or but did it ever air? I don't think they did. I don't I think he recorded it for posterity but not for release kind of thing. Um, but you'd have to ask him or I'd have to okay. check, but I don't think it was ever released. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was like, Hey, let's do a live show, you know? Right. Um, and, and they had the host there. It was a lot of fun. Um, Matt from, uh, June oven, uh, was on there and myself and I, uh, pardon me, the uh, other guest, I forget who, but yeah. it, it was, it was uh fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, but while while we were on the stage, uh, the hosts, you know, very straightforwardly asked me. I can't, I'm, I'm gonna even forget what it was, but I think it was something so simple, like http or url or something you know like what does that stand for what does that mean you know what i I gave the answer the answer was wrong and it was so embarrassing like i was i was dying i mean i you know it is what it is but it was so funny to me later especially because i was like a room full of nerds i mean uber nerds who came to a you know a faux computer show a comedy about a show that never existed in the eighties. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Or in the early nineties. Um and I gave them the wrong answer, but it was it was a lot of it was it cracked me up. I was dying. It's like my nightmare, you know? You're yeah. in front of a highly technical audience and you're supposed to you know, have some sort of acumen and you somebody asks you a fairly simple question and your mind just goes, Foop. <laughs> no. It's the best.
0: Well, anyway, thirty years of the web. Do you see there was a group of people who remade the uh, the original browser? Which was uh, written by Tim Berners Lee on the next workstation. Mm-hmm. Uh was sort it's of. So nice. Uh, do you know that? You didn't know that? The original. No, no,
2: I didn't know that, but I didn't no. know somebody had remade it. Oh, they it recreated this, uh, it. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, that's cool. Well, I'll have to.
2: I saw somebody uh, tweeted a picture of the actual workstation, which was cool.
0: Oh, that is cool too. But they remade it yeah. in the web, like using modern web technology, gotcha. so you could play with it You mm-hmm. know, right in your web browser. And it's a pretty so good. They have, <laughs>
2: do they have BOD settings? <laughs> to no. Give people a real feel? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, because I think the I think the idea was that next workstations at the time were uh, all hooked up to university Local? networks. Yeah. But even the that's university right. network was so slow. That's what right. drove me nuts about Mosaic. I was like, this thing has no future. <laughs> Every- I
2: know. I mean, the, the you know people were like, oh yeah, I had a fourteen four modem. I'm like, no, no, that's thousands. <laughs> Let's talk in hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classic. But yeah, I mean, I I think it was a certainly a world where everybody was trying to understand and the only the only movie from the era that even got it remotely right was essentially made to be a comedy which was hackers i mean i feel that they just got so much right with that movie and it was not really meant to be a serious movie at all and in fact they got a lot wrong but like the ethos was right Wait, hackers or sneakers hackers no no sneakers for sure like that era was was a little bit before that but i i think in terms of like the the emergence of the web as a populist enterprise not a thing for nerds or enterprise because technically sneakers is about an enterprise you know uh, skunkworks project right it's it's not about users or consumers and i think that the first like big for me the first big like movie that got how the web was going to relate to like Teenagers and hackers who would go on to essentially build the world's largest companies on the internet right. was was hackers for me. That was. That uh, was do it. you see that
0: the uh, the Captain Marvel website was designed to sort of because the Captain Marvel movie, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to. It seems like it's a good movie, but it I think it takes place in like 1995 or so, and mm-hmm. so they made the film's official website look as though it were like a GeoCities website from 1995 (laughs) but then like i think it was the first person who pointed it out that i i I have to say it did kind of offend me it was as somebody who made websites back then and Mm -hmm. used to sweat the details like using what was a debabilizer which was like the ultimate way to crush every possible bit out of a gif Mm -hmm. you know without losing any of the actual colors um Like, if there was a vague, like, an eight-byte metadata field that was optional, it would strip it out, you know, just to save a bite. Right. Um, uh, The Captain Marvel website is, like, totally, even though it looks like a 1995 thing with the blink tags and it's low-res gifs and stuff like that it mm-hmm. it's like gigantic it's like a 20 megabyte
2: download of, and
0: downloads all, all of the uh,
2: take it a week and a half <laughs>
0: t- right to it would, no it never would have finished no no modem connection in history has ever stayed up long it has enough ever
2: stayed up that long
0: or at least in that time to download all right. of this and there's no computer that could have run it there was no nobody had like a computer that had enough ram to render one tab that that would have been that complex, you know, oh, it's, man. it's sort of a cheat. Like, and I don't classic. even know. I don't even know if you could make if you use 1995 markup. Would it work? Would it still look like that? I think it would. You know, I, I it just speaks to me of, you know, they should have just found some old timers <laughs> who typed all their yeah, HTML if they were really by dedicated.
2: Hand. Right. Right. <laughs> anyway, have you seen Captain Marvel? No, I, I told and you. We that. Should, I haven't probably shouldn't it. talk about it this soon. Well, right. you haven't seen it anyway, so right. we won't talk about it. But yeah, it's really good.
0: I, yeah. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. No, it seems like a good premise. I uh, I love the mm-hmm. idea that it takes place in 1995. Um, anyway, I'm looking forward to it, but I have not have not seen it. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I really one tidbit, completely spoiler free, that I think I'll put this out into the universe. But I really feel it is one of the first. I mean, it's certainly one of the first superhero movies, but and certainly the highest grossing movie ever to to examine to sort of put on screen. Um, and I I speak about this from a distance but have read and listened and talked to other people about it but um, it sort of puts a the female internal life onto the screen in mm-hmm. a way that is very very interesting it's a very emotionally driven superhero movie that is not about you know how a person's physicality can affect the world but instead how they feel and think you know mm-hmm. and it, putting that on screen in a way that is not it's, you know, almost painterly in its in its application of the way that it does that and certainly not in the very straightforward way that, you know, you normally see um, a male superhero interact with the universe or, or the world and you go like, oh, yeah, I can see what he feels or how he thinks or whatever. You know, it's very, very interesting. But I'll just put that tidbit out there. It's cool. I loved it yeah. a lot. Very nice. Uh-
0: yeah. Uh, Why don't I take that uh, perfect segue of the 30th anniversary of the web and tell you about our first sponsor, our good friends at Squarespace. Web may be 30 years old, but I'm telling you, I don't think it's ever been more important that if you want to get yourself out there, whether it's a personal site, a business, a blog, something like that, to start with a solid website. I think there's this backlash against doing everything on social networks. I think it's catching up to people. I think we've all figured out that for an awful lot of stuff um, you shouldn't be thinking that all you need is an app. You need a website. And I'll tell you what, the best way to make a website, especially if you're not an expert. But even if you are an expert, even if you are somebody who remembers what I was talking about using debabilizer back in the day, and you know HTML and CSS and JavaScript and JavaScript frameworks, Squarespace can get you up and running with a professional-looking website so fast And it gives you all the control you want. If you're a totally non-technical expert, you'll never leave the WYSIWYG environment of the Squarespace website. You use the website itself. You log in. What you see is what you get. When it looks the way you want it to look, you're done. And when everybody visits your site, they'll see exactly what you saw when you were dragging and dropping and modifying everything. You visit, I guarantee you, you visit websites every week and you have no idea that they're Squarespace built, Squarespace hosted websites. Because they don't all look the same. They all let you brand it exactly as far as you want or need to to express your brand. And they have all the features you could want. You can host a blog. You can do podcasts. You can sell stuff. They handle all the commerce. Anything you want to do on a modern website, you can do through Squarespace. Uh, It's a great company. Think about them. Next time you or somebody you know who comes to you wants your help, and you start rolling your eyes like, ah, oh, now I'm in it because somebody in my family, my brother-in-law needs a website, send them to Squarespace. He'll do it himself. It's so great. What you need to remember, you can just go there and start building a website. You get a free trial. Spend uh, like 30 days, get a free trial. Then you have to pay. And when you do pay, remember this code, TalkShow, just T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W, and you get 10% off. And you can get 10% off as much as you pay when you first sign up, including an entire year in advance. So go to squarespace.com slash And remember that code talk show, uh, when you actually pay and you'll get 10% off my thanks to Squarespace who haven't been around for 30 years, but feel like they've been sponsoring my show for 30 years. <laughs> uh, we've got a lot of other stuff to talk about. I was thinking I would save the Disney stuff for the end. Sure. Uh, but this this is going to be this is going to turn into America's favorite Disney pod, podcast <laughs> by the end of this. Uh, I have so many questions to ask you and so many things to say. Uh, let's run through some news. So, what else do we have here? Uh, WWDC dates were announced earlier today. We're recording on uh, Thursday, March fourteenth. No surprises at all. June seven to, or three to seven. Uh, uh, a lottery for tickets that starts today runs for a week a little bit shorter window this time by by like one day or something yeah it's like last no, not too much but last a bit. last year I, I keep track of this last year they announced today they announced on march 13th and it didn't start till june 4th and i think there was a little bit more of a window for signups for uh for lottery i think what they've figured mm-hmm. out is that people who want to go um most of them sign up are probably already signed up right <laughs>
2: Right now, four right. hours after it was announced. They don't need to give them so much time. Right. Right. Like there's other people. There's a little bit. Who, there's other oh, people ahead.
0: who I guess are waiting for like permission from work, you know. But,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, in some course. ways
0: you could sign up for the lottery before you get permission and, you know, get the clearance, sure. get the clearance after cancelling. you win the yeah. ticket,
2: you know. Right. Uh, same location. But yeah, why go through? I mean, I will tell you, just speaking from personal experience, and sometimes getting clearance for these things is, it's an effort. And so, why would you do that if you don't know if you can even go? You know, right? Why would you go? Yeah, through and I
0: get it. they are non-transferable. It's not like you've got like a golden ticket you can just hand off to somebody. I think they're non-transferable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to, you know, it's like if you uh, have to
2: ask for an exception. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's more student slots this time, three hundred and fifty or so. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Uh
0: I enjoyed that part last year. Uh they had a uh, I spent more time inside last year than 2 years ago. The, last year was the second year at the uh, San Jose Convention Center, whatever the person's name was on it. And inside the entrance as I recall, you know, they uh, they also had a newfangled uh like RFID type entrance thing where where you would take mm-hmm. your badge I think they even put it on a nice little snap, you know, thing that you could extend. And then it would, you know, be like, welcome, John. Um, and you'd come in and there was a nice little thing that sunlight, it, you know, but that was like where they had the uh, Ethernet connections, et cetera, for fast downloads of all the betas because they don't let you do those over the Wi-Fi for, for obvious reasons, even though they have very good Wi-Fi there. I think part of the reason it's very good is they don't let people download six gigabyte betas of Xcode um over the air so there's an area where you can plug in and they have ethernet cords and thunderbolt cords and probably USB C cords for whatever macbook you have and they also had the ar area do you remember this remember they had game, a couple of games uh, last yes. year mm-hmm. that's right uh, you know and unsurprisingly the students were very interested in those ar games and they were also very good at them remember there was one where it was like i think it was like jenga blocks a Effectively, mm-hmm. and you had like a virtual like slingshot on your phone, and you you your goal was to knock over. It was like a sort of like a game of ping pong. A, you know, two people across from the table from each other, but instead of hitting a ball at each other, you were shooting balls at their blocks. And there was this one kid who who looked a he looked like he was like twelve. He really might have been twelve. And he was, like, an ace. Like, if there was, like, an ESPN version of this game, he'd be on it. <laughs> and it's crazy right. because the game just came out, like, a day before. Sure. <laughs> they were actually, like, the Apple people who were staffing the table. Like, they saw him playing, and and they ran to get the one of the other staffers who, I guess, was the best among their staff. Like, you got to see this mm-hmm. kid. <laughs> it, right. was, it was all very fun. But the kids uh, definitely bring up the energy level they do
2: and i think it's also a good you know sort of concession to the fact that if you're gonna invite a chunk of the you know development audience to come and sort of get them excited about this stuff why not students i think it's a great idea yeah so it's good
0: it's you know they've they've regularized everything from the announcement date to the week that it is you know everybody expected june three to seven there were telltale signs in the uh public filings for like public spaces in San Jose were, <laughs> I think it actually even said <laughs> Apple, which I guess, you know, was a, a no, no, but it, it's the worst kept secret in Apple on Apple's annual calendar, just for various right. reasons. Um, but Um which yet,
2: isn't, I uh, like it. I don't know. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. No, <laughs> you know, I do like, think I, why? I, do, I think that a large portion of the white reason they keep it secret is that just, you know, things can change. Right. And then right. everybody's like trying to read into the change, but right. right. once you have it locked, announce it. Right. They just, you know,
0: there, there's some part of them. It's, you know, the, you know, the old saying, I'm sure, you know, if you probably heard it from your dad, uh, measure twice, cut once. Right. App, I think with a lot of these things, Apple is like measure a hundred times, cut once, <laughs> you know, like, hmm like they're not going to, you know, they have X, Y, and Z that they definitely want, hope to announce in WWDC, and, and unless they are that, you know, hundred percent convinced that there'll be at least an announceable shape, they're not going to announce WWDC. Like they might, you mm-hmm. know, like if Io- if something happened and and you know, Federighi had to say, look, I hate to say it, but we're not going to be able to announce iOS thirteen on June third. We can't, you know, mm-hmm. X Y. Just something's not ready. Something will not be ready. They would. They would postpone WWDC. You know, there was that one year, right. like way back, like two thousand six or two thousand five or something, where they they did cancel or postpone it to like August or something, which was very strange. But those were. It's almost almost a different era at Apple. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I also love. I love the way they don't announce that there's going to be a keynote. That's a separate announcement, usually like a week before there, like, Tim Cook will,
2: will host right. Right. keynote right. kick off WWE. you like, oh, <laughs> it, it, were we supposed to believe that Tim might have been too busy, that he's right. got other things going on? Or <laughs> yeah.
0: That one, and again, <laughs> Apple PR, who you and I both have good relations with, but, you know, they don't like to explain themselves. <laughs> And no. No. they're also ready for you to ask them to explain themselves. And they always have pat answers of, you know, that are more than they're no, they don't just say, ah, no comment. They're, they've they got like an answer, but it is effectively no comment. Um, right. My guess is that they do that just for the pure publicity of getting a boost, getting a, a little pre WWDC boost into the news cycle, you know? Sure. But it always cracks me up when it's like at the top of tech meme that, you know, WWDC keynote will be Monday, June 3rd.
2: Yeah, like, my reaction is how did they get him? <laughs> how did they get Tim Cook? As somebody who runs a right. conference? <laughs> I'm like, that's my joking response. It's like, oh man, how'd they get Tim Cook? He's, again. His schedule's so so busy. How did they ever get him, get him to come to our conference? How'd they get him again? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, right. again, every time, man. They're playing favorites. Alright, like, and imagine
0: how weird it'd be if there were no keynote for WWDC. <laughs> like, yeah. everybody would be like, "What the hell is going on?" Yeah, this is, this is yeah. nuts. If they just started with the technical state of the union and it's. <laughs> They're showing up Objective C and Swift code on slides. Two minutes. I in.
2: would love it. I would love it one year. That'd be amazing. And just like CNN uh, right. is there going expecting the big corporate news, and they're like, "Wait, what API? Right. What?" Right. In theory, <laughs> that would be you know
0: the way to do a developer conference keynote. You know, the, the I always say that's the best way to think of the State of the Union. The State of the Union is like the technical keynote. That's um, right. You know, it would work for the audience. <laughs> it would not work for, for the CNNs of the world.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then, you know, the thing is yes, there's a different sort of uh, like the, I don't know, inside-inside baseball on some of this stuff, which you well know, but some audience members might not know, is that they kind of consolidated press. Uh, for a lot of their events so a lot of these events wwdc has always to some degree been that way because it's the one it's the one thing right yeah. it only happens one place always yeah. does but a lot of their events they've taken a lot of international press and people that would have normally maybe had their own events in their own cities either yeah. hosted at an apple store yep. or or hosted you know kind of tele tele uh, telegraphed or whatever um what do you call it oh my gosh you know conference yeah teleconference den or yeah. whatever they have brought them all in person which is great you know i think that's fine and why shouldn't people around the world apple's a global enterprise the iphone goes on sale right. in every country right away why shouldn't they have all these international press there yeah. but it certainly has changed the mix a little bit yeah. in press and certainly of course in this new era of apple the mix of press has changed uh, yeah. significantly yeah. um but it's- the audience makeup at those things is by nature always going to be these nerds, right? And for a lot of, you will see the tweeting patterns. I mean, you and I follow a lot of these folks and we are these folks to some degree, you know? And so you'll see the tweeting patterns, you know, you'll see people going like, oh, here's the corporate jumbo, you know, like (laughs) all of this stuff. And, oh, here we go. Retail update. Like people around the world are sort of like taking the numbers, even, even, you know, uh, my staff, my reporters, they're taking those numbers, comparing them against previous numbers, writing analysis of that. Okay. Yep. Here's the growth curve, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? But the people in this audience are like, "Hey, give us the stuff, man!" Like, you know, they start to get excited the moment they see something announced on stage that they see that they could maybe integrate yeah. or take advantage of, you know, or or sort of build, you know, yeah. something with. Uh, that's their that's their thing. So it's yeah. an interesting audience. I always like it. I enjoy it. It's a different energy than, say, an iPhone. Um, pure, pure precedent, like right? Sure, exactly. Um,
0: yeah, if they telegraphed the thing, it would that would take them right back to like the twenty four hundred baud modem era.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> telegraphed it, yes. That would. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should have flown from Asia over to California because <laughs> if you don't know Morse code,
2: I'm sorry. All of our remotes are via teletype this year. So <laughs>
0: no, I've told this story on the show before, but last year. Oh. It must have been the phone announcement because it was in the Steve Jobs Theater and um, they supplied the the foreign, I I don't know how many languages, but it's certainly at least Chinese, I think, Um, maybe Japanese too. But a couple of the foreign language people got little in-ear pieces like you get at like the, uh, uh, the U.N., And so Mm -hmm. they were sitting live in the Steve Jobs theater, but they were getting a live translation of what was being said on stage. And there was some sort of I don't know if it was a malfunction or just they were poorly set up, but they were turned up too loud and it was too loud to be in their ears. Uh, And so they took them out and i don't blame them i wouldn't put something too loud in my ears but they took them out sure. and it was loud enough that they could hear it just holding next to their ear but it also meant that while you were sitting in the audience you heard these this like why do i hear like electronic chinese language what what who is doing this and then like you turn around it'd be like if i thought it was over my left shoulder and then all of a sudden it's over my right shoulder and i'm like what the hell is going on i really thought somebody was doing like a facetime call and i thought it was very rude turned out it wasn't it wasn't rudeness at all, it was just like a technical thing, but it, it really it emphasized for right. me just how many of the members of the press really are from uh, around the world at these events and that mm-hmm.
2: did not used to be the case that 's true and then one of the byproducts of people being around the world is that they are interpreting many of them stream it yeah. or are you know kind of producing yeah. videos live, and so they will translate for their audience live, and they have no yeah. compunctions about translating it full full volume right next to you it's it's great like i have no problem with with them um translating live because i think they're definitely they're providing the same service we are you know it's just uh sometimes a little difficult to hear over them um it's a lot of fun having everybody there though i love the fact that it's international community and it's people that I wouldn't get to interact with from the press, even though we're in the same industry and same business and they're, they're writing for a very similar audience, just in a different language. I love being able to like talk to them and interact with them and get their viewpoint. And they're always so enthused about being there um, and, and talking to to the people in the U S so it's, it's a lot of fun. It's actually um, quite a different vibe than it used to be where you'd see the same people sort of in, yeah. um, you know, every event. So that's, that aspect of it is really, really cool to me.
0: Yeah. We were at, we probably talked about it the last time you were on the show, but we, you and I sat together for the, um, the Brooklyn event in October and there were a lot of retail employees from around the country who'd been invited. Um, and you know, and, and some part Apple has always filled seats with Apple employees, you know, like, um. You know, if the watch team has a big announcement, uh, some number of people from the Apple Watch team get to attend the keynote. So, fa- famously, last year in the uh, in the September event, when uh, Jeff Jeff uh, uh, Why am I drawing a blank on his name? The C- COO Jeff Williams came on stage. Mm-hmm. He got in a super enthusiastic. Uh, uh, amount of applause from one section of the theater and that was the watch <laughs> team and you can't blame them but right. it was a little weird when you were there like why Why are those people so nuts for Jeff Williams
2: um, yeah <laughs> but like the enthusiasm about to announce his collab with Pitbull uh, his new single Yeah, <laughs> the enthusiasm of those retail
0: folks in the audience though was different and more palpable because none of them had ever seen a keynote live they obviously got selected by being The good employees who maybe were there a long time, but were enthusiastic about Apple stuff and they were some of them were sitting right behind us and they were just their enthusiasm was so palpable and it's like you and I just sit there and sort of have a we don't we don't clap at press events thing and there's people Mm -hmm. behind us going absolutely nuts, but not like in a phony way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, you know, just made it a cool thing. I like WDC, you know, because it is unique. It's there is no other even, you know the brooklyn thing was in the academy of music and it's a beautiful venue and they've they've done this thing where they go around the you know country these days for certain of their special events but nothing compares to having like 5 or 6000 people in a room it's it and most most of them just being attendees you know and every year now it's a ton of first time employees or attendees not employees attendees um the energy level is just not comparable to any of the other events mhm Did you go to... You don't go to the uh, annual shareholders meeting, do you? No. No, I've never been either. Uh, A, I'm not a shareholder. Uh, I guess I could get a press pass. I don't know, but it's just... Yes, you can get
2: a press pass, but yeah, I'm not a shareholder either. uh,
0: Nothing. It doesn't seem worth a cross-country trip. There's Because it's just not... I don't write the finance angle much. And I whatever I do, I'd rather just read a summary of somebody who knows more about it than I do. Um, But somebody who went, who's just a DF reader... um, but was really happy to go. Cause I think this was the first year where they held the shareholders meeting in the Steve jobs theater. And Oh, cool. Yeah. And so that it is a cool thing to see. I mean, it is a gorgeous theater and it is unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, so I could see why somebody, you know, I, I if it were, if it weren't cost prohibitive to make the trip and I were a shareholder and I'd never been to the Steve jobs theater, I'd be interested to do it just for that. But anyway, this reader sent me a picture from his audience. He was like, I've always heard that the screen is amazing here, but this is, you know, this looks like 640 by 480 projection and, and it's hard to tell from an <laughs> iPhone photo, but it really, it certainly wasn't the screen that they use at the press events and it, uh-huh. it was a, it was clearly projected. You know, there's sort of that look sure, of a projected image of a and, front projection. Yeah. Front projection. And the mm-hmm. screens that they have now are like LEDs or OLEDs or I don't know, some kind of thing that the screen itself lights up. Uh, so I, I don't know what the reason is, but they they cheaped out on that for shareholders, apparently. Unless, <laughs> unless this photo was in, tremendously misleading, along with this DF reader's eyes. <laughs> so anybody
2: out there... They, bro- they broke out the Mac Classic projector. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wonder
0: when he said that, and he wrote... And I know that I've, I've raved about the display technology in the Steve Jobs Theater and the audio quality... And I just wonder how many other Daring Fireball readers went to this and thought, what the hell, what the hell is Groover raving
2: about? This screen looks like it, like it
0: costs 50 bucks.
2: What is going on with this guy's eyes? <laughs> oh, man.
0: That's funny. Uh, all right. WWDC. Nothing else to say, though, other than dates. Um, the other Apple thing. Which is breaking news so coming out tonight? It will be out by the time this shows out. Is Apple has a new uh, TV commercial about privacy? And then you have a piece in uh, TechCrunch with a preview of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know been marketing privacy stuff for a while now. I really don't think it's a you know any secret to anybody that they view this as a tool for marketing now, uh, as well as an internal, you know belief framework whatever you want to call it yeah um certainly there's been over the years they've had a natural inclination towards you know privacy and and um you know Uh, protecting users data and that sort of thing but only it was only a couple of years ago that they really started to trot it out as a marketing tool and sort of positioning tool both in terms of you know personal speeches things that tim cook said interviews and then also of course marketing um you know obviously there's there's big marketing efforts apple had a big billboard at mwc um with the iphone you know touting its privacy features and things like that right it was like what Um,
0: what it was because but because that's in vegas it was like a what what happens? no no M W oh.
2: mwc's in barcelona oh well they had one in vegas too oh okay gotcha it was like what happens i didn't see that one
0: on your iphone stays on your iphone you know playing off the what happens in vegas stays in vegas mm. catchphrase of this of the city
2: yeah it makes sense um but anyhow they've been doing that for a while now so this is a primetime tv commercial um it's going to be on their youtube channel by the time you hear this and then um of course, you can see it uh, in my piece, but the um, actual commercials airing on primetime TV. uh so you know, evening wherever you are in the U.S., um, that's going through March Madness, and then it's going to be airing, I think, uh, worldwide after that uh, in select regions. But it's a you know, it's a big buy; it's an ad buy for them that they would normally buy. It, it is an iPhone commercial, right at its core, but it's just the point of it is basically instead of, hey, here's the new iPhone, you should buy it because of the camera. It's, here's the new iPhone, you should buy it because privacy. That's the sort of... And not to spoil
0: it, but it's a commercial, so I don't mind spoiling it. But it basically, it it doesn't tell you up front it's an iPhone. You don't see people using iPhones. What you instead see people are in real-life situations, like uh, using a public restroom or a woman putting on makeup in a car and the guy next to her is staring at her and she just rolls the window up, you know, to get a little privacy. It's just a whole bunch of maybe three, four second vignettes of places in real life where you might want a little privacy in a public space and what people do to do it. You know, nothing's really hysterical, but they're all vaguely amusing. But you're like, where's this? I I think part of the gimmick of the ad is the first time you see it, where's it going? You know, who is this for? And then the the closer right. is, hey, if you want privacy, you care about privacy in real life. You should care about it on your phone or something like
2: that. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those ads where the product really isn't in the, in
0: no. the commercial until no, the No, nobody has know? an iPhone out in it throughout the mm-hmm. entire commercial. It's all about real life scenarios. And that, to me, is the interesting angle. Like, it is amusing. It's a couple of things that are kind of funny. Um but I do I, – the underlying premise to me really emphasizes how we've as collectively have gotten into this mess where our digital online lives are such a privacy nightmare is that in – real life it's sort of intuitive you know like the one you know it's you know the silliest form of privacy but there's one where there's just a line of urinals in a public restroom and one's being used and a guy is sort of absent-mindedly walking up realizes he was going to take the one right next to the guy and then just backs over and takes one you know two spots away right you you in, you don't even think about things like that you just intuitively think oh well, i'll take this one because it'll give me the most privacy you know while i do it mm-hmm. uh and I, it's, it's not so obvious online. And then in fact, as we've seen more and more, a lot of it is insidious and you need to be like a, an expert level network wizard to even figure <laughs> out yeah, what's being tracked, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It, it, you, 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 there's no way that a normal person would even realize how cookies are being used to, you know, get you the ad for the pair of boots you searched for on Amazon on a, you know, a, a movie preview site a week later, you know, mm-hmm. it's not Yeah. Intuitive. And
2: the, the systems experts that build these systems are building them. And you could, I think in, in many ways you could argue that their intent isn't necessarily to obfuscate, obfuscate the fact that you know, your information is passing through several hands before it you know causes this effect, or whatever the case may be, but the product I mean, the, the result is that the result is that it's, it obfuscates that stuff, so yeah. it makes it completely you know, unaware to the normal person. And yeah. in many cases, not all, but many cases, they are intending to obfuscate it, because it yeah. doesn't do them any favors to explain it to you clearly. um, just sounds creepy, you know, you
0: know, and, and to, to make a super obvious point throughout history until very recently, um, your privacy could be regulated using just your natural senses, you know, your sense of vision, Mm -hmm. your sense of hearing, you know, if you're in a restaurant and you're, telling somebody something private you regulate the volume of your voice in a very natural way without thinking about you know Mm -hmm. you just kind of know like hey there's somebody at the table right next to me i'm gonna you know i'm gonna speak to this in a lower voice because i'm saying something i want to keep private um right there is no way that your five senses really help you online in terms of keeping track of that and what's being stored and what's not and what's encrypted and what's not
1: Mm hmm.
0: You know. And yeah. I, th- I
2: mean, there's the closest thing that we have to that kind of ESP is a network monitor, you know, and most yeah. people don't know how to install those, don't even know what they are. And then even if you know what they are, it's still a pain to use one. Right. And then you have to be able to interpret them. Right. And once again, they do their best to obfuscate, you know, that traffic.
0: Right. It's it's you know so technically you are using your eyes to look at the output of the network monitor, but it's a cerebral action to to mm-hmm. understand it and to process it and, That's right. and see how to do it. Whereas knowing to lower your shades when you change your clothes or knowing to you know lower your voice when you're speaking a secret, it, you don't. It's not cerebral at all. It just comes naturally, unless you're some sort of idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good ad. <laughs> I think it's a good ad, and I think it's interesting that Apple's doing a push around it. You know, and I, you know, these—I know a lot of people out there aren't uh, quote-unquote sports ball fans, but like a, a big March Madness buy is pretty big, and it's a good way to reach a very broad audience. It's, you know, certainly yeah, one of it's the most
2: a, a good eighteen to twenty-four demo audience. Um, you know, people with buying power, purchasing power. So there's a lot of you know savvy that goes into these buys, um, but that they would put instead of the camera, or you know, some other feature. Screen that they would put privacy in that slot yeah. is an interesting, certainly an interesting display of how strongly they believe that that is a differentiating factor for for them. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, go re, you know, we don't have to discuss the ins and outs of all of it here, but I, I absolutely think that people will, in to some valid degree, you know, point out that. Um, well, I, I'm gonna just gonna point it out. Taking an ethical or moral high ground and making it a product feature is a, is a, a dangerous maneuver because yeah. then you have to sort of you have to back it up. You have to you know realize that like if you're going to pitch this as a product, that product has to work right, right? It has to be consistent. Yeah. And um, they certainly, you know, there's very many cases you can make for the efforts that Apple has made to sort of you know make put their money where their mouth is and and certainly make um you know make effort to make sure that their product decisions and uh sales decisions and relationship with the consumer it aligns well with that message right so yeah. they they definitely do they're not just com- it's not complete b s in other words but there's a you know, this spot, for instance, very, very closely associates the concepts of privacy and security. You know, they're separate, but they're interrelated, obviously, right? right. And they've had some issues recently with, like, the FaceTime bug that allowed that right. kind of, like, eavesdropping thing. Obviously unintentional. Patched. You know, they apologized, et cetera. Um, but then you have things like, you know, Facebook kind of being able to ship this sort of spyware or malware app. Uh, malware maybe a little strong but definitely spyware app on the app store um a scattering of of bad actors using the enterprise certificate program to like ship gambling apps other things that apple doesn't allow on the store to iphone users at scale we're not talking about just one or two yeah. people but you know hundreds or thousands or more people um so you know they've had recent incidents that have kind of pointed out that it's it's not perfect you know their stance is not perfect they're not you know it's not a a completely pristine wall that they're offering but i think personally i do feel that you know there's still a major difference between a company that has a situational loss of privacy either via a bug or whatever while having a syst- systemic dedication to privacy and that most of the rest of the ecosystem that exists out there operates as like with this invasion of privacy as a service model. And there's a significant difference between those two things, between a company that's willing to back up their stance and to make uh, honest and genuine and significant efforts to keep user data private and to keep that data secure, of course, to then ensure the privacy. Um, And then, you know, a lot of what the rest of the industry does. Basically, you know, stating privacy as your mission is still supportable, even if you have bugs. But mm-hmm. attempting to ignore that you host the data platforms that thrive on this stuff is a little bit of prestidigitation on their part. But I still think that they have a they have a leg to stand on, basically in this in this regard.
0: I mentioned on my last episode with Renee, and I not I won't go into a long rant on it again because it was a good rant on the last episode. But basically, that to me, the elephant in the room on Apple's pro privacy slant. Is very specific, and it's their it's their deal with Google to make Google search the default search in Safari, and mm-hmm. you know that's a very tightly held secret. Neither company is, I don't think, officially revealed it, but like Goldman Sachs has estimated it that last year it was like nine billion dollars, and that for this twenty nineteen it's going to be like twelve billion or something like that. It's a mm-hmm. lot of money, and it's very hard to say. To me, there's there's a hole in the argument where if they say we're we value your privacy and Google doesn't. And I know they're not calling Google or anybody else specifically out by name in this ad, but right. they're certainly implying that every you know there's sort of an everybody else that isn't. Yet we're going to take ten billion dollars to give them the default web search, which is one of the ways that they track you, <laughs> right. you know, and what you're searching for and they keep you logged in and when you, you know, log into any Google service and they encourage you to log in just for using web search. Um I I'm not saying it makes them hypocrites, but it, it makes them at least partial hypocrites. Um mm-hmm. and just the thing that occurred to me after that episode, before this episode, but only shortly enough before the episode that I <laughs> I searched for it for 5 minutes was just to put 10 billion dollars a year cuz let's just call it that for the sake of argument if it was mm-hmm. estimated at 9 billion last year and 12 billion this year let's just say right now it's up to 10 billion a year what how does that compare to what these companies pay in in corporate income tax and Apple pays more than anybody in corporate income tax they paid something like 15 billion dollars So Apple almost makes enough from Google to cover its corporate income tax. Google has had a very – the last three years, they got hit hard by the repatriation. So they paid a a bigger lump sum two years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. But like in 2017, they only paid like $5 billion in U.S. corporate taxes. Uh, So they pay more. They pay – by by what I'm looking at over the last few years, they pay more on an annual basis to Apple – to make Google search the default Safari search then they mm-hmm. paid to the U.S. government and in corporate income tax like a lot more maybe arguably around double so that just puts it in scale just how much and the other thing I looked up is Google last year they had a record-breaking year for revenue they had 130 some billion in revenue and paid Apple roughly 10% of their revenue <laughs> or at least they're paying them this year roughly 10% of last year's revenue to make to keep yeah. Google search the default search in Safari which puts it in scale uh and i think tells you just how unbelievably profitable the iOS using audience mm-hmm. is to Google in terms of how they make money from web ads that's right
2: yeah it's insanely valuable to them i mean it's like it's like propping the door to your house open with a diamond because it's that important that you get air. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's nothing to that diamond is nothing to them compared to the the diamond mine that they have. Yeah. I, I mean I think there's a an absolute argument that when it comes to, you know, Apple adjudicating what should be considered, you know, a societal norm when it comes to the use of personal data on smartphones, You know, if it's going to be the absolute arbiter of what flies on the world's arguably most profitable application marketplace, it might as well use that power to get a little bit more feisty with the big codes that make their living on our data. You know, Um, so you know, I don't know. I think there's absolutely an argument for that.
0: Hey, while we're on this, there was a story that broke. I didn't follow it closely because I just had a lot of other stuff to read. But there was a story that broke that Facebook is under an actual criminal investigation did you see anything about this for for privacy violations and that the if this was like in the eastern district in new york and that two u.s cell phone manufacturers were like listed as like witnesses or something like that um and i had a couple people say do you think this is apple do you think this is about like back when facebook was built into ios and i was like I don't think it's Apple because it seems to me like this is something different. This is like some kind of co-marketing deal where Facebook was paying companies to allow them to, uh, collect data that was never, uh, never prompted the user, even in an obfuscated way to get their permission. It was like they made a deal Mm -hmm. with company X so that Facebook was able to track certain things that a user used on company X's phones. But this, uh, this thing that was announced about it doesn't say who the companies are so i don't know and there aren't that many u.s companies that make cell phones i mean there's motorola trying to think who else i don't know i feel like it's a story we have to keep our eyes on we don't really know much about yet
2: yeah i don't know much about it either i know um, i've got people tracking it but i haven't personally been tracking it so i don't know yeah i did know that it happened but that's about it yeah
0: we'll file it away for future episodes uh, mm mm-hmm.
2: All right. Let's. Uh, well,
0: I guess or we could keep going with the Boeing thing. Do you want to talk about the Boeing thing? Are you an airplane nerd?
2: I am a little bit of an aviation. Nerd. All right. Well, I let's go with lot.
0: the Boeing thing and then we'll take a break. You know, it's tragedy. So it's hard. You know, on the one hand, I wanted to say this, you know, to anybody if, you know, it happened in Ethiopia, the latest crash. So it may not be anybody listening who knows anybody, but it's a tragedy. And I feel a little guilty nerding out on this like it's a bug, you know, like the FaceTime mm-hmm. bug. Uh, you mentioned bad bug, really bad bug. Nobody died. You know, we're talking Mm -hmm. about a thing here that left a couple hundred people dead. Right. Let's just acknowledge that that's a tragedy. But as nerds, I find the story, the more I read about the story of this, the more fascinating it is as a tragedy of, of human error. When I first saw it, when I first saw the story, I, I saw that another you know plane had crashed the first one was where was the first one indonesia or something i forget but you know second foreign uh, somewhere else around the world is a, a boeing 737 max eight which is their latest model for a single aisle uh, air uh passenger plane meaning it's small mm-hmm. enough Most of I'm, I'm guessing almost everybody listening to this has been on a 737 or an airbus 320 or 321 just a typical single aisle plane Three seats on each side in coach, two seats on each side in first class or business. Um, The second one had gone down. And because it was the second time since October, a lot of places around the world just sort of hit the panic button and said, okay, let's ground these planes. And the FAA in the U.S. didn't and Canada didn't. Um, And the FAA is kind of considered the gold standard for this sort of thing around the world. Uh, at least mm-hmm. in my opinion, I was talking to Ben Thompson, who's also an aviation and He agreed, and so it's a little weird that yeah. everybody else didn't follow the FAA lead, but instead they grounded them while the FAA was still saying we we you know we think this is okay, and Boeing was is still saying we think this plane's okay. Um, mm-hmm. But as more, yeah, and,
2: more- and the F- FAA has always been aggressive, right? And it falls across all kinds of regulatory things. I mean, anytime you ask yourself a question about you know why does some nonsensical thing happen with air travel or planes or grounding or delays? It's usually you know because the FAA is being overly cautious, right? right? They're typically known for it being relatively conservative, right? For and good reason,
0: you know, and 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 the the results show it. Air travel historically has been a very mm-hmm. safe way to travel. Famously, everybody knows that statistically, to go from point A to point B in, uh, a motor vehicle on the road, no matter what type of motor vehicle you have a way higher chance of being injured or killed way higher than you do in air travel. It's really the safest way to go from point A to point B statistically, but psychologically, if for obvious reasons, you know, putting yourself into an a aluminum tube, 30,000 feet in the air is not exactly something we're hooked up to accept psychologically by evolution, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> right. Usually,
0: if you're up in the air uh, more than a few you're feet, about to die. <laughs> you're you're in big trouble. Let alone thirty thousand yeah. <laughs> feet. So psychologically, and you know, I, I, so I'm not making fun of anybody who has flight anxiety. I tend not to, yeah. um, but it, I, I totally understand it. It is easily one of the most uh, understandable phobias from a, even a rational sense. It just because it just seems crazy. Um, but the the long story short of this is that. Boeing really put themselves, as, as I understand it, Boeing put themselves in a bad hole because they were developing the 787, which was a, a bigger plane, um, and decided to develop it in a different way for Boeing, where they outsourced a lot of it as opposed to doing it in-house and thinking it would save money. And it, was, it didn't. It led to all sorts of delays, and the delays cost them money. Tons of money, so it ended up costing them a lot more and the seven eighty seven was very late um, and because of that, they sort of got like the the money maker is the seven thirty seven and I think most of us who fly frequently know that most of you you know you're way more likely to end up on a seven thirty seven or a three twenty size plane than you are you know mm-hmm. a, a bigger bird 747
2: fuel efficiency and
0: route length and and just how many passengers they expect on the plane they're not going to fly an empty plane they're only going to use those big ones when they can fill the seats and who knows maybe on a lot of them it'd be easier to fly two smaller planes than one bigger plane to get everybody from city a to city b um but the 737 has long class has long been boeing's big money maker and but they sort of let it languish while um they were de- wasting all this money on the 787 and in the meantime their arch rival Airbus has come out with a new 320 the 320neo I believe it's called which has bigger engines the bigger engines uh make it more fuel efficient I believe it I believe the exact number is 14% so if you replace like a regular you know the previous 320 with the new 320 you save 14% on each trip on fuel mm-hmm. which is super significant you can imagine um And in the meantime, Boeing didn't really have anything and really was originally planning to do a ground up. We're going to make an all new airplane to replace our 737s. Who knows? They probably would have come up with a new number for them. But their single engine or single aisle, which it's something I hadn't really thought of before, but it's a great way to describe this class of plane, a single aisle passenger plane. They they decided we're too late. You know, like we don't have enough time to do this. Airbus is killing, you know, is is taking our business and this is our most mm-hmm. profitable thing and so they're like, "Well, what can we do with the 737 to uh, t- to get a, a new 37 737 into this with the fuel efficiency?" Uh that led them to put bigger engines on a 737, which in turn changed the aerodynamics of a plane that wasn't originally designed for it and notoriously right. has sort of low wings and doesn't really have a lot of room. Um mm-hmm. And the other uh, X factor is that to keep costs down, uh, and this is something I had no idea about, that pilot certification is such that you can come out with like a new 320, that like the 320 NEO. If a pilot is already certified on the previous 320, the 320 NEO is sufficiently similar that they count as certified on the NEO. Um, and if, if it's new, too new and too different, and the pilots all have to be recertified that's a big cost for the airline cuz they've got to spend all this money to get all of these pilots certified on a new plane and mm-hmm. so this and this is where it all went bad for Boeing i think um they they put this software MCAS some kind of automatic control system in that was right. modified the f- you know the flight pattern uh, of the plane automatically to somehow make it fly more similarly to previous thirty seven thirty sevens. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you take it from here? <laughs> or or <George.
1: laughs>
2: I feel like I'm already oh over my head. Oh my end. gosh! <laughs> yeah, I mean the uh, the automated software was a. Um, it, it absolutely was a, 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 a pilot assist feature, right? Right, and the the pilot assist feature was a. I think it was mostly like an altitude-related feature. Yeah,
0: um, I did read that. So,
2: yeah, and and an
0: angle of attack.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they, you're you're basically what you have in a plane is like there's a there's like the, the most efficient way to fly it, and then there's like the safest way to fly it, and usually you know you're somewhere in between because you want to you know make your flight efficient, but you want to make it you know. um you also wanted to to you know come in safely, so there was like the they analyzed the flight pattern of the crash jet and they looked at it at takeoff and they looked at the Lion Air crash, um, and they saw that they basically showed similar fluctuations in height, like vertical. Well, they called them oscillations right. or, or fluctuations in height, and they basically were able to. Once they looked at the wreckage and analyzed it, they were able to do that, take that and satellite tracking and understand that they needed to investigate further and that it was very likely this software package that was, you know, the issue. And the pilots reported uh, on the Ethiopian Airlines flight, reported flight control problems yeah. uh, to the aircraft controller before they, they came down. Um, but the the computerized system that they put in place was a... It was supposed to basically assist them in keeping the proper altitude to get the proper lift. But what happened is after, if it, if it decided that it was not working right, it would just, it would just cut out and then they couldn't take proper control over it. Yeah. I got an email
0: from somebody who obviously knows exactly what he's talking about. He wrote like his PhD dissertation on the complexity of, um, commercial air, oh, nice. airline cockpits. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a super, super interesting email. Um, but like one of the things he said is, as, as you might expect, this is probably no surprise to you, but like a sensor on an airplane, um, a, a faulty sensor, a sensor that as, you know, like a, needs a, a complete fleet wide recall. Uh, mm-hmm. The difference might be 99.99% accurate versus, or, or success rate versus 99.999%. Right. Accurate, like this is. It's not like you know. It's like a one in ten thousand thing, but one in ten thousand is unacceptable in the airline industry. And one of the mm-hmm. problems with this MCAS system is that it was relying entirely on one sensor to detect the thing that it was trying trying to detect, and that that one sensor, people are suspecting, you know, may have a higher than acceptable propensity to to give an erroneous result. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah, basically the MCAS. Given the very, very tiny amount of like difference that it saw, that was like a 20 degree difference in angle of attack yeah. between the left and right sides of the right. of the plane. And so it basically kept taking the yoke out of the pilot's hands yep. and pushing it forward, like pushing the nose down. Mm. And then they basically had to keep yanking the the yoke back up, forcing it yeah. to come back up. So the,
0: the other thing that this, this guy's email said, and I haven't read this anywhere else. And he said, this is speculation. And so this, you know, this could be wrong, and who knows? So you know, this is a podcast, so it's all right. But on on most other commercial airliners, one of the one of the ways to dis, to to disable all autopilot features is to just pull back hard on the yoke. You pull right. back hard enough on the yoke, and all autopilot. It says,
2: oh, you don't? Yeah, you don't any, want me to take control. Yeah.
0: Anything autopilot related turns off. You know, and then there's mm-hmm. switches. And he thinks that with this MCAS thing, it's only a switch. Um, got it and so yeah that oscillation the MCAS
2: specifically cover uh controls trim i believe Yeah. and is basically a, if they'd have known i don't think they even knew that's what the conclusion yeah. is so far that they didn't even know the mcs was causing the problem right so they didn't know to switch it off right so they could have but yes i believe you're right like right. it wasn't this thing where it was kind of connected to the autopilot features where they grab the yoke and yank it and they expect, yeah. to, okay, I'm back in control of this thing. And in fact, the MCAS was still at work still with its faulty data about, about angle of attack. And it's pushing the nose of the plane down yeah. and um, they didn't know to switch it off. If yeah. they had switched it off, they could have gained control back. Right. But since they didn't know that it was the issue, they couldn't actually do it. Right. So and, and those oscillations you were
0: referring to on both, flights were exactly like 15 seconds apart each time mm-hmm. so they would like mm-hmm. take control and be like okay we got it and then 15 seconds later it would d- dive again and they were like you know i'm sure they were panicking i'm sure well probably not panicking because pilots are you know trained you know they're pilots because they don't panic yeah. but they were There's probably a phrase
2: like, in aviation called being behind the plane yeah. and it's when you don't understand why a plane is doing something yeah. and that's what i think the state that they, yeah. they entered into was it's you end up in this scenario where you are trying to make corrections for something right. but you don't know the cause of it
0: right but having these you know you you'd, you'd get the plane going back up and then 15 seconds later the plane would decide itself to point the nose down and then 15 seconds later the same thing happens it does look exactly like a software problem like 15 seconds is when it you know the sent you know the thing goes let's take a reading up oh, reading still bad go down Whereas, Mm -hmm. like they said, like an often form of oscillation in general, of course, is turbulence. But turbulence doesn't tend to come at exact 15-second intervals. It might be, you know, 7 seconds, then 20 seconds, then 17 seconds, you know, because it's a natural phenomenon, not something written in software. Mm -hmm. I thought the Yoke argument – and again, speculation from somebody. I didn't read that in a confirmed thing. But I do think as a user interface nerd – I think that's super interesting because what is the best user interface for a pilot to take control of the airplane from autopilot that that they suspect is gone awry? Pull back on the yoke, right? Mm-hmm. Pull back on the yoke, disconnects it. You know, um, I mean, isn't that how? I don't really use cruise control a lot on cars, but isn't isn't like when you hit the brake, cruise control goes off?
2: Usually, it's a brake tap, yeah. 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 And and I don't remember and. I mean, I've had cars with cruise control for years, and I th- feel I should know this. But yeah. I think some cars, most cars, perhaps with cruise control, if you hit the gas, it does not disengage it. It just right. allows you to speed up, right? And then and it will fall back, back to, to its the speed last you set. setting,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, that's how my cruise control works. Is gas you can use to go a little faster than you had it set, and then it just drops you right back to where you had it set, which for me is usually still extremely fast. You know, ninety-one, mm-hmm. ninety-two miles an hour um but brake is like okay turn off the cruise control which is obvious right. sense and you don't want somebody stabbing at the little cruise control button on the steering wheel to disable it you know and again i'm not trying to you know it's an oversimplification to compare driving a, a honda with flying a 737 max but yeah. still there's that moment of i got to you know uh oh what's your instinct and as a driver you hit the brake and as a pilot you pull back on the yoke especially if the problem is the nose going down so it's sort of a user interface problem sort of a corporate planning problem sort of a a cheapskate bureaucracy problem in terms of this you know the whole reason for this software patch in the first place was to avoid having to retrain pilots on this plane that they probably should have had to now, you know, not again, maybe there's, you know, there's nothing fundamentally fundamentally wrong with these planes, but if the pilots had been retrained on them as though they were the new planes, they should have been treated as it, every, every pilot would have known what to do, how to identify it and what to do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, the, the software assistance is one of those things that you know i mean obviously has existed and will existed um will exist for forever you know with with aviation but it is a there's a reason that we still have human pilots you know and there's a reason that almost every aviation disaster that's averted um can be linked almost directly to pilot experience and that you know That's that's just this right in the pocket of this thing, you know, that happened here.
0: One of the things I read is that Boeing has a reputation in the world of aviation as being a very pilot forward company that they've always thought the pilot should be at the center of this, you know, that they're not trying to to obviate pilots. They're they're trying to help them, but that they've, you know, famous, you know, maybe more than other companies have designed around. We just want to we're going to assume that there's an expert pilot at at the at the helm at all times.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: yeah and how do we augment their ability to keep the the plane safe and you know fly the plane rather than how do we supplant yeah. you know them as a decision maker which yeah. is i think it, it you know it's definitely an argument uh, for and against in the aviation industry because right. they feel that you know oh, pilots get tired and they're human and they're fallible and all of this stuff right um but yeah it's the back and forth over that right know.
0: and then the other thing that looks really damning and i know it's only five reports but the, the dallas morning news um found five reports that pilots had filed over the last few months ever since the uh, the Lion Air crash in October flying mm-hmm. 737 Max 8 planes uh in the United States and all seemingly with the in the same scenario shortly after takeoff a bit of a loss you know the nose goes down and you know these guys all figured out it's the I, luckily i guess or just, you know all figured out it was this MCAS System disabled it, took control of the plane. Everything was right afterwards. Um, But one of the complaints from the pilot called it, like, used the actual word unconscionable, that, you know, that the manual Mm -hmm. that they had for the plane doesn't really emphasize this enough. You know, that they sort of had to figure it out on the fly. Uh, Which, again, speaks to this whole, uh, not that there's anything wrong with the plane, but that there's something wrong with trying to say this, if you're good on any previous 37, you're good on this new one. And it really Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, and that's purely for financial reasons, which is a really bad look when it when when the stakes are so high. Right. Um, The other conclusion to draw from this, I have to say, you know, again, it's a bit of speculation, but it's a bad look at the moment, at least, is that, like you said, the FAA and my understanding is the FAA has a reputation of being aggressive on on calling for like grounding of a plane or, you know, calling, you know, doing something, even if it means greatly inconveniencing air travelers, um, you know, in the name of safety and that the FAA was last to do it. And Boeing happens to be the U S manufacturer sort of is a bad look at the moment. And I wouldn't be surprised if that turns into some aspect of the scandal. You know, that if this had been an Airbus plane with the same problem in those two countries, maybe they would have pulled the trigger on grounding them sooner.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, it, that's so true. And, you know, it, it really sucks, you know, that you have to think this way. This didn't stay in age, but it, it really does. I mean, you know, some people who are and I'm not by any means a Washington insider or nor do I follow this stuff. But in some people who hear this maybe like, oh, yeah, duh, you know, uh, this is the way the world works. But, you know, the, with moment like Trump tweeted something about, um, you know, Hey, this is, you know, we're going to ground these things or whatever. They should be grounded, et cetera. And then the FAA quickly announced that they were doing it. Um, I don't know which came first or whatever. But the first thing I did was I thought to myself, let me Google who the senators are in Illinois. Hmm. Where Boeing is headquartered, and they're both Democratic. No, or, you mean just uh, Democratic senator. Seattle, isn't? it? I thought they were Seattle, Washington. Company. Oh, I think I think, I think, I think oh. Boeing Corporation hmm. is uh, in Chicago, but oh. I could be wrong. Oh. Anyhow, is it, but you know, you it, yeah. it doesn't really matter even if that was yeah. the case in the this case. That, but the, it's the political and money motivations, you know, behind. Yeah, keep these Boeing's in the air. Right. You know, that's bad press. We can't have them having that. We'll fix it quietly. Or you know, I'm going to say something about it because it'll hurt the other guy. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, well, it doesn't matter if that was the case here. It always is the case. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, in, in addition
0: to Boeing, the other two big corporations that are most direct, uh, U.S. corporations most directly involved are Southwest and American airlines. Cause they're the two mm-hmm. that have purchased the most of them or have the most in their f- active fleet. So like right. for Southwest, you'd want to look at Texas where you've got, I know offhand, you've got Cornran and Ted Cruz who are Republican senators. Although Cruz, Uh, I saw that Cruz who, who heads like a Senate committee on aviation was calling for them to be grounded before the FAA actually said it. So, um, I'll just point that out that from what I've seen about that, I don't, I don't think there was an angle there that like Ted Cruz was pushing for them to stay in the air because of Southwest airlines being headquartered in Texas. I think the opposite, I think Ted Cruz was a little bit ahead of the curve on, Mm -hmm. you know, let's put these things on the ground. Right. Anyway, I, I don't think Boeing has handled this well, in my opinion, because Boeing also was, you know, uh, def- defending it and t- even to this point. and And even, you know, they've, they're have they grounded worldwide, but they didn't get out ahead of this. And I all I can think of to compare it to is the uh, the Tylenol scandal, which I don't have in front of me. But do you remember? You, you were probably
2: a yeah. kid. Uh, yeah, I, I was, but I do remember it probably from discussion later on, not uh, at the moment.
0: You know. Uh so I, again, didn't do the research, so I'll speak off the top of my head and probably get something wrong. But at some point in the eighties, <laughs> yeah. at some point in the eighties, some, uh, psychopath working in a factory, it put, uh, like cyanide in a bunch of Tylenol packaging and people, mm-hmm. I think people died. Um, not too many, but you know, uh, but it, it somehow it was quickly determined that these people had all taken Tylenol. And Tylenol figured out where these packages had come from, from the serial numbers on the packaging. And they knew very quickly, you know, they could have said, just take all cereal, everything that came out of this, like, let's say plant, take them all off the shelves. Um, but instead what they did, and very quickly, is like the CEO of Tylenol said, take anything with the word Tylenol on it of any product from any place, take it all off the shelves and destroy it all. Just, just, you know, let's get rid of it all mm-hmm. to be as safe as possible. Even knowing that that was actually w- well above and beyond what they needed. They knew where this guy worked. They figured it out. They could have just taken off the products that might've been from the place where he worked. Um, but by doing that, it, it, it like kept the Tylenol brand from being tarnished in the least. Like, like mm-hmm. worldwide people were like, yeah, I can still, you know, even though people had just been poisoned by Tylenol, they bought the, the fact that like, you know, with, within days of this thing even happening, the CEO is saying, let's just destroy every, every bit of it worldwide. And, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and then they came up with tamper proof packaging, et cetera, et cetera. You know, back right. when I was a kid, you just open a pack of pills from the store and you didn't have to poke holes in anything. It was, you know. <laughs> Right. um, but famously considered one of the sagest uh, public relations moves an executive has ever made, mm-hmm. you know and who knows how many untold uh, millions hundreds of millions who, how much money in Tylenol product was destroyed uh, you know that didn 't need to be, but it was all in the name of let you know, let 's not forget that whatever however many millions or billions of dollars of Tylenol is out there. Uh, I think they even told people to throw the Tylenol out in their home. You know, if you've got any Tylenol in your home, throw it out. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, you know, it, it also, I, I think there's a lot of people who would think, well, that's that's the risky PR move, right? The risky PR move is to, to be there saying, throw it all out, you know. Sure. Um, but in hindsight, it's considered, you know an act of, you know, to borrow a a Phil Schiller term, courage, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. everybody would agree it was, and everybody agrees in hindsight it was the right way to do it. I can't help but think that maybe Boeing should have been way ahead of the curve, like after this, this second crash and saying, Hey, we don't think there's anything wrong with these planes, but we would like everybody around the world to ground them while we do conduct a thorough investigation. Mm Mm-hmm. I I can't help but think that that was a better way for Boeing to play this, especially from everything I've read in the last like forty eight hours.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just seems so obvious in the you know <laughs> that you would just go ground them immediately until we figure it out, you know, and we'll we'll figure out we'll help the airlines figure out how to get you where you need to go, but we can't use these planes. It's just you know after even the first crash. Because it's it was obvious with the first crash that there was some sort of plane fault, And it's like, I don't know, systemic, you know? Um, and that's, uh, it just, I don't know, it boggles. It boggles. Money really screws with people. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, there's like an old saying, once is
0: chance, twice is coincidence, third time is a pattern. And I kind of feel with something like air travel. Once you get to twice,
2: you lower that by at least once, I <laughs> at say, least one. I
0: say, you, yeah, you lower it by at least one. I, I think, mm-hmm. I think you, I think you say two is a pattern and, right. and act from there. And I have to say, that's as contrary to my initial read over the weekend when I wasn't really paying attention. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like I, as a non expert, total non expert, and not even really an aviation nerd, although I'm suddenly turning into one with this. Um, there was a story I linked to. Uh, his name is uh, John uh, Ostrower. And he writes uh, – he's a longtime aviation industry reporter. And he writes his own website now called The Air Current. And he had a great piece. I linked to it from During Fireball yesterday. I, I learned a lot from it. Really, a lot of what I said before was just restating what, what I learned from him. But um, he had a, a comment. You know, he's well-sourced. So, he, you know, it's anonymous sources. But somebody in the aviation industry said – that if these two crashes had happened one in October and one in March but the airlines had been Southwest and American they they would have grounded these planes hours after the the second one it was the fact mm. that there was sort of a bias within the FAA that well who knows how good Ethiopian Airlines like is like
2: they don't maintain their planes and so or they don't train their pilots right
1: apart. yeah
0: and i hate to yeah. say that my sort of casual read from the news over the weekend, might have been along the same lines. Like, I might have just as a knee jerk pundit screaming at the government what to do, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I might have had a different take too. Yeah. Let's take a break and I will thank our next sponsor, who is Eero. Look, Eero makes Wi Fi for humans. Basic premise behind Eero Wi Fi systems is called a mesh network. You get multiple devices. Basic starting pack has three for Euro. You put them around your home. They talk to each other. And then they envelop your whole house, your whole office, whatever you've got, with one network based on these three things that talk to each other. And it's just common sense, really. You don't have to be a a Wi-Fi engineer to really understand the, the, the basic idea that having one router in one spot to cover your whole home, your whole office, wherever you're trying to do it. Uh, It's going to have trouble getting through all the walls and everything. And then spreading a couple out that all can talk to each other and create one seamless network is an easier way to do it. Uh, But in addition to the fact that it's just a better way to envelop your whole home with one Wi-Fi network, uh, it's really, really easy to set up and administer. Uh, Basically, you do the whole thing with an app on your phone. Or on your iPad. Uh, couldn't be easier to set up. It's super easy to do things like add a new one. You just go in there and say, add one. And then it says, what do you want to name it? Like you can name it like, you know, third floor hallway, whatever you want to do. Add one, uh, that sort of thing. You can monitor all the devices that are on the network. You can easily set up a guest network Which I'm a fan of. I don't really like having people come to my house and get on my main network. Uh, Love having a guest network. Super easy to set it up, Uh, super easy to monitor it. And they've also got Euro Plus. Euro Plus is a service that you pay extra for, and it lets you do all sorts of extra stuff, lets you set up your own uh, uh, way to block malicious and unwanted content across the network. You can filter for adult content for stuff like monitoring your kids or something like that. Uh, It does ad blocking optionally, content blocking. It can automatically tag sites that can contain all sorts of stuff like violent, illegal adult content. So you can choose what the people on your network can see, don't see. They even have features when you sign up for it. You even get stuff like VPN protection from Encrypt.me, password management from the great 1Password, and even antivirus software from Malwarebytes if you want it. It's a great setup. Uh, Really, the single router model is just going the right way, the Dodo bird. So if you're looking to upgrade your home network to something with a mesh network, Eero has a great uh, starter kit. And also I will add this. I've used it. They have incredible customer support. Uh, and it's something that come, they've really invested deeply in. You can call and get, call them up and just get a hold of a wifi expert within 30 seconds. You get a real human being right here in the United States. Uh, and if you have any kind of problem during setup, you can do it. I forget the problem I had like a year ago, it was something when I moved, uh, but I called them up. They walked me through it. Uh, couldn't have been easier. Very, very simple. Uh, so we, I'm talking to you right now. If you hear this, I'm talking to Matthew over an Eero network. Really has changed the Wi-Fi in my house for the better tremendously. I've been using them for years. Um, here's the deal: never think about Wi-Fi again. Get a hundred bucks off the Eero base unit and two beacons package. That's the base unit. That's the little thing—a puck-sized thing, about the size of a Apple TV—and the beacons are little wall units that even have like little night lights. You just plug them right into a wall socket Uh, and one year of Eero plus. So save a hundred bucks on that. You get the base unit, two beacons and a year of Eero plus service. Just go to Eero.com slash the talk show Eero.com slash the talk show. And at checkout, just enter that code, the talk show. My thanks to Eero for their continuing support of the talk show. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it Because I want to nerd out on Disney But I'm sure you read the Elizabeth Warren Let's break up these tech companies thing Yeah And her initial It was a post on Medium And it was uh, (laughs) (laughs) Of course (laughs) uh, Focused on Amazon, Facebook And Google Uh, And then uh, I think she was at South by Southwest I think that the, the Medium post was timed For that And, uh, the verge got an interview with her and asked the obvious question that there's one, one company that's obviously missing from that. And she said, Apple, and they're like, what do you want to break Apple up to? And she said, Oh yeah, (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts on this and I haven't been able to express them." (laughs) number one, a lot of what she's saying isn't really breaking these companies up. I get Mm -hmm. it, you know? Um, but like. At and old At and T, the old Mob Bell thing, that was breaking up a monopoly. That was taking a nationwide company and breaking it up to a bunch of regional, much smaller companies. Right. Um, you know what she's proposing in each of these cases isn't really breaking up, with possibly the exception of Facebook, which I guess would kind of qualify as a breakup. Because I think what you know the gist of her argument with Facebook is that they shouldn't be allowed to own Instagram and WhatsApp too. Mm-hmm. And so I guess... in They the hy- were
2: component parts. They could right. become component parts again. It sort of makes sense. Yeah.
0: yeah it also seems like the less... You know, it, yeah, it's breaking up Facebook, the corporation, but not breaking up Facebook, the thing that we think of as Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, probably not a bad idea. Uh, uh, like of all of the parts... Like I, My thoughts on her the, the advice for these companies range from, hmm, this Facebook thing maybe ought to be... <laughs> pursued and you know uh, uh, the instagram thing it, when that was approved i forget what year it was i know they bought them for the at this point famously good value of one billion dollars
2: i don't know it's that, also known as one instagram for right. quite a while what uh because that's like <laughs> that we use that oh how many instagrams uh two instagrams Dave. That's what they bought it for. When they bought uh, WhatsApp for twenty Instagrams,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I I feel like we as a country at that point should have known better, and that one should not have been approved. You know, right uh, with Amazon, but well, with Google, she's got this argument. You know, a bit. I hate to paraphrase it all, but. Uh, Basically, her problem with Google, I, I mostly agree with, too, which is that they shouldn't be able to leverage Google search to favor their other properties.
2: Right. Uh, I mean, that's something that you know, <laughs> Stop them from Yelp has been screaming about for years. Yeah. You know I mean? I mean, people, right. people have been pissed about that for a very long time. And in fact, they have been fined several times over right. this scenario where they were taking, you know, saying like, oh, hey, you can pay for an ad. To go above a competitor's thing. Right. But then they're putting their own listings. When you just search for a random thing, you think you're getting the listing that you search for, but really you're getting something that pays Google. Right. So they're earning money on both sides of the deal.
0: I So I'm, I'm amenable to that argument, and I'm with you. Like Yelp is a really good example where that really does seem like what they did to Yelp. I mean, Yelp is still around. They haven't put Yelp out of business. But I do think that they damaged Yelp in a way that qualifies as traditional anti-competitive, illegal anti-competitive mm-hmm. behavior, where they leveraged you know, Google Search to favor their own listings for these restaurants and encouraged people to r- rank them and rate them and do Yelp-like user things so that Google could build their own Yelp-like service. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is – I have to say, though, it is – hard it is a little bit to me less cut and dry the analogy in the tech world i think would be to the windows the microsoft windows uh, antitrust saga of the 90s mm-hmm. where one of the things they were accused of was favoring their own office apps over competitors like lotus 123 and word perfect and etc um But even that, and, you know, I've said this over the years on the show a lot, even, you know, I don't have the archive going back far enough at Daring Fireball to say it, but even as a strong Mac fan at the time, and someone who did not see Microsoft's incredible dominance of the industry as a good thing for the industry, I always felt mm, about the whole antitrust argument, because to me, yes, they did take some actions against those apps Um, you know, to, they leveraged the windows monopoly in ways that favored office in certain ways. And there Mm -hmm. probably should have been some action against them. But in other ways, I felt like the arguments against it were missing the ways that Microsoft just won in some ways, fair and square. Like Mm -hmm. it was Microsoft that had the idea to bundle all three, to make all three, the spreadsheet, the word processor. And, uh, what am I missing? What's the third part of an office suite? Oh, the the, uh, PowerPoint. Oh, yes, presentation. To to do all three and bundle them as a suite. And remember, most of those things were sold by seats back then. And they were very Mm -hmm. expensive, you know, like a copy of word was like 300 bucks. Uh, and they were the ones who were like, well, you could pay 300 bucks each for $900 or we'll bundle them all together for $600 or something like that, you know, which, you know, in hindsight, you know, today's world, you think $600 for a copy of a word processor (laughs) and a spreadsheet seems like a lot of money, but you know, that was the world we were in then, but you could get this bundle, for less. And they did a lot of work to make them work together so that you could put spreadsheets in your word docs and PowerPoint and, you know, get a spreadsheet into PowerPoint, et cetera, et cetera, that, that having, you know, a word processor from one company like WordPerfect and your spreadsheet from Lotus, you didn't get that integration. There were things Microsoft did that part of the rise of office. Wasn't, wasn't just cheating. Similarly with Google search that at some point, you know, if the best, if the whole idea is that if it's truly honest, if they're just being the most honest search engine, they can be, and you type words in the field and hit return and they're making their best guess as to what it is you're looking for. It might be another Google product, right? Right. It's it like, it's not easy. It's not easy to say that they shouldn't ever put other Google products at the top of the search list. It's, it's, It requires nuance, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and we get to Amazon and her argument with Amazon to me makes no sense at all. This is the point where to me, her argument belies uh, to me. She doesn't really seem to understand how Amazon works. (laughs) Um, she keeps talking about these product platforms or, or something like that. And she doesn't want Amazon to act as its own store if they're running Mm -hmm. a product marketplace, you know, which is what Amazon has evolved into where other sellers, I think we're all familiar with this now that you search for something on Amazon and you look for who the seller is. It may not be Amazon. It's, you know, quite often not, uh, you know, that you and I can start a company selling, you know, coffee cup lids or something like that. And Mm -hmm. rather than sell them through, Matthew and John's coffee cup lid company.com or in addition to, we can sell them through Amazon. And when people search for them on Amazon, they'll, they'll get them through there. Um, but basically I, I don't think this is a stretch. What she's saying is that Amazon shouldn't be allowed to operate its own store, which is what most people think of Amazon as.
2: Yeah. I mean the, the problem with the arguments about Amazon and, and you know, to some degree, arguments about other com- these other companies is that when you don't have like a, a true technical understanding of what they are and how they do what they do, um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to comment on it. There are certain th- market forces at play, for instance, it's somebody who doesn't understand the technical aspects, but somebody who does understand the, f- the fiscal aspects of it are even more qualified to talk about. They're like, I don't care how it's done. Here's why it's wrong right but i don't think it's being tackled that way i think people you know when you tackle things on a on technical merit or on you know pre- precise methods of execution of what they do your arguments can be often blunted or or distorted or made ineffective by not un- truly understanding the way that these things work and i think that's one of the the sort of benefits to having you know, people who truly understand this stuff write about it and talk about it and kind of analyze it is because they understand that if you talk about these things and you have a platform like Elizabeth Warren does to say, hey, maybe these companies are too powerful. We should examine that. Why, what should we do about it? you need to get your technical arguments correct. Because if you don't, it blunts the ac- efficacy of your argument.
0: Yeah, and w- one of her arguments, and it's like the most highlighted, you know, the way that Medium shows you the most highlighted uh, passage in an article, the one that's most highlighted, and I don't know if that's because people are agreeing with it or because people are selecting it to say, like, what the hell is she talking about? Is she saying, like, hey, the government busted up Microsoft in the, in the 90s. Aren't you glad that we get to use Google for web search instead of Bing? And that really wasn't, (laughs) that wasn't, it's just
2: a, it's a nonsense sentence, essentially.
0: It's right. Google A wasn't even a a, a thing at that time. Um, it was actually all about, well, part of the argument was about Netscape, which most, you know, If she said like, aren't you glad we, aren't you glad we get, still get to use Netscape instead of being forced to use IE. Uh, that would actually be a little bit more accurate as to what the case was about, and everybody would be like, "I don't use IE, <laughs> I don't use
1: Netscape," <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you know, the being the most highlighted thing makes you wonder whether it's being highlighted ironically <laughs> or being highlighted, right. you know, genuinely. Right. And you know that that kind of statement, like using Google instead of being stuck with Bing, a it's painting Bing as an inferior product, which I yeah. think many people would make an argument that it is. Sure, great, right? right. So right. we're stuck with being okay. Well, that's the <laughs> that's the result of what you did to Microsoft. Yeah, <laughs> of what the government did to Microsoft. Right, like you know. So anyhow, I, I, yeah, it's it is it's wheels within wheels of how you can pick the argument apart. Right. Well, and and I think it, that's what the point I was trying to make. It's a yeah. weak argument. It's yeah. like it could be the point of the argument is actually worth talking about, but having a weak argument does it a disservice. It does the yeah. conversation a disservice. The 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 nineties
0: mentality, and there's a reason for the mentality, because it was true for the throughout the eighties and nineties, was that the important thing was to be the company making the software that ran on people's and businesses PCs. So Microsoft, you know, is the one who was the most successful, and they made the operating system that ran on your PCs, on your PC, right under your fingertips, and they made these office apps that ran on your PC right there. And then the web and Netscape became this big thing. And Netscape had a big IPO and and was getting all this momentum. And there was a mentality at the time that the most important thing to control would be the browser. Because the browser was the app that ran on your PC And it still is important, you know, we were just talking about Apple and Safari and how much money they make from Google by having Safari, and Chrome is certainly a big strategic aspect of Google. So nobody I'm not saying that browsers aren't important, but the thing that nobody really foresaw was that there would be companies like Google and Amazon who weren't running any software on your computer. And we're running in the browser, and it didn't matter which browser it was. Google was Google, whether you were using I, IE or Netscape or ICAB. It was you know you typed G O O and it filled in, and you went to Google, and that's where you searched for everything. And Amazon was there. You know, Amazon worked in every browser. That was the you know part of the brilliance of. And, and again, in hindsight, it seems super obvious, but in the nineties, it didn't seem obvious. At least at a certain point, until a certain point in the nineties, it didn't seem obvious. That the way the next wave of big corporations was going to come from service providers that just ran stuff in the cloud that you accessed from any browser. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Uh, and then when she got to Apple, uh, I think she really missed the boat. <laughs> I think she picked the right part of the company, which is the App Store.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I do think that if there is an anti-competitive argument to be made against apple and i think there is a good one it does involve their administration and control of the app store
2: yeah all the clearly demonstrable ones are there you know the ones that are consumers can feel and see and touch so to speak
0: but she completely missed the boat on what
2: it is It's she's
0: she's back to this uh you run a product marketplace you shouldn't be allowed apple shouldn't be allowed to to both control the app store and distribute its own apps on the app store
2: which is dumb. That's the dumbest thing. Is that they should be allowed. That no, it should actually be the way it should be done. They right. should put their ops on the store, apps on the store. Everybody else's apps on the store. People install what they right. want.
0: Right. I I wouldn't <laughs> necessarily agree with it. But one argument would be that yes, they should put more of their apps in the app store as opposed yes, to baking exactly. them in. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. and and I I think it's a coincidence. I. I that Spotify came out this week with their public call for, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a government intervention into the app store. Um, but if you look at Warren's proposal, it wouldn't really help Spotify at all. That's the thing is the Spotify has come out with this thing. No, very no. publicly calling for, you know, that Apple's app store isn't fair. And what Warren is promoting, promoting as a remedy wouldn't really help them at all. I mean, I like it. Yeah, it wouldn't help them at all. What you're saying and what I'm saying is a possible thing is what if Apple Music had to come from the App Store instead of mm. being built in and not not just built into every iOS, but literally it's in one of the four most prestigious spots in the dock. Um, and then, right. you know, you'd have to download Apple Music just the same way you'd have to download Spotify. But that's not really Spotify's problem. Spotify's problem is the 30% that they have to pay for anybody that's if they right. were to allow people to sign up within the App Store. The 30% that's mandatory, though, the 30% rate combined with the fact that any in app digital purchase of a subscription or something like that uh, has to use Apple's payment and has to pay 30%. And so that's the anti competitive angle is that uh, if Spotify and of wants. of course,
2: the argument to the contrary is that people can buy a subscription to Spotify. They just can't do it via IAP, right? You know, right? And I think that's you know that will be Apple's argument. And Apple's argument, of course, is we built the App Store, we maintain the App Store. If you want to sell things in the App Store, you those are our rules. Right. If you want to sell things outside the App Store, you can, and they could use those th- things in the App Store. You can they could download the app, but you just can't the convenience of buying it, the conversion right. bonus. Of buying it in the app is something that we're not gonna let you use unless you pay us, right. and that should be the crux of what Warren should have attacked right and she didn't right and I
0: think there's a good argument there, and I think it puts i think Apple has a defense for it, but I think it's it's sort mm-hmm. of a you know I, I,
2: I, I, Apple's biggest defense is Google right is Android ironically mm. right they're like. You know, they on one hand, <laughs> Tim Cook could be like, "We've weighed like billions on the App Store," but he can also say, "But we're so tiny compared to Google; <laughs> they have all the users, right, right? right?" And it's like taking a revenue number and comparing it against a user number, and I, there is some sense of irony in the fact that the government is set up not necessarily to play with those revenue numbers, but to sort of pay attention to. And reward or whatever you want to call it, or, or punish people based on the pure user base. So, if Apple's to make an argument that Google actually is the one that should be examined, or that they are provide they provide them some cover by providing a platform that is widely accessible by a, a major portion of the population, and not only that, but they also apply many of the same rules, they have cover there. You know that is probably their strongest argument.
0: I, I I just feel like fundamentally, though, the whole thing, and I've been on this for a while, like, I just think that today's antitrust law in the US, the EU might be a little better than the United States, but I still feel like fundamentally, the whole thing is still rooted in 100 years ago. I mean, and Warren even brings up like the, what was she say here, back when railroads were dominant, this is a quote from her, and you had to get steel and wheat onto the railroad, there was a period of time when the railroads figured out that they could make money not only by selling tickets on the railroad, but also by buying the steel company and then cutting the price of transporting steel for their own company and raising the price of transporting steel for any competitors. Um, And that is actually something that happened, and that actually informs modern U.S. antitrust law. But that was 100 Mm -hmm. years ago and i feel like trying to apply that sort of logic to these companies which are entirely digital and that these economies are told these the way that they work is so different um is it would be like trying to a- apply 1804 laws to those companies in the early 1900s right they right. you know how in the world would the laws of of 1800 have foreseen railroads let alone the steel industry.
2: Yeah, the carriage law is just not going not gonna to fly right. in a digital marketplace yeah. right. and, and or to my, evaluate one. Right, and
0: my favorite example of this in recent law was the, uh, the Apple eBooks antitrust case, which really it, the whole thing just hinged on whether prices were going up or down for consumers. Um, and I get lots of pushback on this. I've gotten it over the years by, by saying that I really think Apple was done wrong here. And it's always from readers who say, "But the prices were higher, and I want to pay nine ninety nine for books." But what Amazon was doing wasn't, you know, Amazon's the one who has a dominant position in the ebook industry, mm-hmm. a monopoly. They're the ones who, if you talk to publishers, who do you, who are you concerned about in the ebook industry? They all say they all say Amazon, not Apple. <laughs> Their whole yep. reason they got into bed with Apple and made the deals that that ended up causing Apple to lose that lawsuit was because the actual book publishers were all concerned about what Amazon was doing, which was artificially deflating prices to keep competitors out. And even Mm -hmm. to the point of selling bestsellers at a loss just because they could afford to and others couldn't, you know, like Amazon as a company with a huge uh, uh, market uh, cap, and a very high stock price and support from its shareholders famously of running as a no profit business, just reinvesting all revenue into the business, um, could afford to sell eBooks cheaper than Barnes and Noble could Barnes and Noble couldn't sell a $15 ebook for nine ninety nine and take a $5 loss on each one. Amazon could, mm-hmm. and they did. That's the bullying anti-competitive behavior, um, uh, and it's all based on the fact that U.S. antitrust law is based on the basic idea that if prices go up for consumers, that's bad. And if they don't, that's good, which in mm-hmm. theory makes sense. But when you think about a company like Amazon that can sell things at a loss when others can't, it doesn't. Uh,
2: and again, it's all well, just based on a it's hundred year old it's distribution versus creation, too. There's right. that argument that falls in. It's it. It may be in the short run slightly better for a consumer, but if the you know if the if there's no profit being made by the people creating the product, you know then it's now you end up in a position where they get crushed out of business or they must deal with Amazon. Then who has the stronger antitrust argument? You know, yeah. uh, and you know
0: Amazon's basic products that. That's not the problem. You know, I mean, Walmart has every, every major retailer has house brand products. Yep. You know, Amazon didn't start that, you know, and I'm not saying Walmart doesn't do things that, that companies consider bullying from their market perspective. They do. Um, But it's just not the fundamental problem that if you're, if you're going to go after Amazon. So I kind of feel like this whole thing is a shame because I do feel like it is good that a major U.S. politician. Uh, someone like Warren who right now is perhaps at the height of her influence because she's already been well-known and now she's announced herself as a candidate for, for the presidency in 2020. She has a significant, you know, number of, she may not be the front runner, but she certainly is in the running. Uh, so something that she proposes like this is going to carry a lot of weight. And, you know, if she winds up not winning, if she ends up not winning the nomination, uh, she may never be quite as influential again, uh, and I kind of feel like so. It's good that somebody's looking at this stuff because I do feel like the government, you know, in the U.S. should be looking at these companies, all four of them, in various ways, in ways that they haven't. But I feel like, man, missing the boat at these technical levels is just sort of this. It's very, very disappointing to me.
2: Yep, I agree.
0: Anyway, what you what I, I didn't look a lot at the Spotify thing yet. What's the gist? I know that part of it is the thirty percent, which I do think is the key thing to it to attack if you're Spotify. But I haven't seen the rest mm-hmm. of their proposal. Have you?
2: Uh, no, I haven't read through it in a detailed way, so I I couldn't speak to it as far as what they what they actually want.
0: Right, but the main problem isn't the fact that Apple distributes apps through the App Store. It's basically the basically it's the thirty percent that they yeah, want it's the money. Right
2: well and then and, may- and which you know the money is uh, right. it's legit like right. you know apple does earn a good chunk of money for a product that they don't create
0: but on the other hand it, it it's and spotify is a smaller company than apple but spotify is not like you know some sort of innocent little uh two-person garage startup like and in talking about uh doing things that would be popular or unpopular. I mean, Spotify has spent like a hundred million dollars recently trying to build a proprietary podcast thing to get podcasts on Spotify into a more Netflix like thing where, you know, Spotify podcasts are only on Spotify. Uh, whereas Apple, which has, which embraced podcasts at an extraordinary, at, in really extraordinary early stage of podcast as a phenomenon and runs what is still widely considered the, uh, you know, it is that's the biggest in, index of podcasts uh, and the most popular podcast player, uh, iTunes and the you know podcast app on iOS, has kept it entirely open in a way that it's, in my opinion, admirable. They've never made even a, even a step in the direction of trying to take any sort of. Proprietary control over podcasts or done anything that would put uh, Android or Windows or going back far enough, Zoom users at a disadvantage trying to listen to podcasts compared to if Apple hadn't been involved. Right. And I say, yeah, never. I say boo hiss to Spotify's uh, grab for podcasts being
2: a proprietary platform. I know, I know. Yeah. Well, look, Spotify is it's a huge company in terms of, especially in terms of music and how difficult that industry is. Their argument is they could have been bigger, <laughs> which is, <laughs> it's definitely one way to go. Um, but you know, I think that <laughs> they they have i think an opportunity to to kind of speak in a populist way but i think that their argument comes off a little bit like well we could have made more money though (laughs) you know what i mean but i don't disagree necessarily with their point i understand where they're coming from i think the way that they're making the point is a little bit you know business focused and should maybe be a little bit more populist because i think they actually gain more support but you know We'll see how it pans out, how the message goes across. I think it, people are starting to get reactions. We're already starting to see some reactions from like lawmakers and and uh, other uh, entrepreneurs and stuff. Who some of those entrepreneurs feel the same way as Spotify and have come under the same right. sort of thumb, so to right. speak, of Apple's you know kind of arrangement where they right. you know it's like uh, pray that I don't make it harder for you. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I my
0: argument would be. And that, to me, the way it probably should be, in some sense, is that uh, an app, if it wants to institute its own payment processing, should be able to. Uh, but then you're on your own as the developers, and you do your back end, and you do the front end, and you take the credit, you you take the credit card numbers. Uh, That's right. You, yeah. you deal with subscription renewal. And people's, you know, in between subscription renewals, if their credit card number changes because they, you know, got a new credit card or whatever, you deal with all that, all these things that, that Iowa, you know, Apple's iTunes payment thing handles automatically, you do it and you're on your own. Or if you want to use our thing, which is a very easy API and puts people one fingerprint or FaceTime scan away from approving the purchase, and we handle their subscription renewals, and you know, and and we we have our we put our trust behind it, and people know that they can trust uh, iTunes for this the way they've trusted it for all their other purchases. Then you'll pay our thirty mm-hmm. percent and see how it goes. And you know, Ben Thompson has argued pretty strongly, and I think I agree with him that if Apple were to do that. They would probably have to lower the thirty percent lower it to where I don't know, but that you know in the way that that would be competing against letting app developers roll their own, like having mm-hmm. Netflix be you know letting Netflix sign you up but not pay Apple any tax by but handling it all on their own, whatever that number would be, would it be fifteen percent would it be ten percent I don't know it would come mm-hmm. down to some other number other than thirty percent due to competition, which is the way it's supposed to work. That, that yeah. would be my yeah. proposal s- proposed mm-hmm. suggestion to Senator Warren if she's if she's listening.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely one way to go. I mean, if, having Apple be the 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 person who controls both of the both the framework that by which they get sold and the architecture by which people can enter into continuing financial relationships with people, it it definitely is a bad look, right? Like it's easy to attack. Um, Whether that's fair or not, I don't know, but it certainly is easy to say, Hey, this is a bad thing. Why, why does this happen? You know, who should be, who could, should have this much power or whatever. Um, But I think there's definitely a way to look at it where you're like, Hey, what if we, (sighs) What if as a company we decided we just didn't need to make this much money off of this particular segment and what we'll do is at least appear optically like we are on the side of entrepreneurs and want to make sure that we're not stifling competition or whatever and they basically don't charge you until you reach a certain size. This wouldn't help Spotify. (laughs) Right, right. But right. it would absolutely create this feeling of like, hey, we we're fostering entrepreneurship and we're welcoming competition and all of this stuff. At a certain point, though, once you reach a certain volume or a certain intensity of business or whatever, you know, we, you know, it makes sense for us to charge you. And who could argue with that, right? And I think that's the way they should go with it personally. But
0: yeah, what's it called—the tax bracket system?
2: Uh, oh yeah, uh, tax bracket. Well, <laughs> tax brackets, uh, trenches or. But there's a name know. for it,
0: and people widely misunderstand it, where um, people think that if the top tax bracket goes to 50%, let, let's just say if you make mm-hmm. them $10 million or more, then there's a 50% oh, right. tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way it actually works is you only pay the 50% rate on the income from $10 million and over
2: that 's right. right, so if you mm-hmm. make
0: ten million and one dollars, you don't owe five million and fifty cents no. in taxes you, you owe a greater percentage of that one dollars right, <laughs> but like yeah. your first hundred thousand is the f- same rate everybody put, pays on their first hundred thousand, you know, and if everybody there's like the earned income tax credit, so like for everybody, whether you're like a billionaire or not, like your first thirty twenty thirty thousand dollars or whatever is tax free mm-hmm. um. That's That would be – yeah, I've seen other people propose that for the App Store where like a, if you have a subscription service, you maybe pay nothing for the first $100,000 and then you pay 10% on the next 100000 and 30% on everything above that, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, right. And again, it certainly would create a lot of goodwill among indie developers and anybody looking to promote startups and stuff like that where you can at least get off the ground – and keep 100% uh, or, you know, maybe minus, maybe they would, you know, minus the credit card fees. So maybe like the, mm-hmm. the initial rate for the first 100000 would be like 2.5% or something like that. Sure. Some reasonable number to cover Apple's credit card processing fees combined with their fraud mm-hmm. and et-, et cetera.
2: Yeah. And I mean, in like that would even, it's not even like the those two options have to exist in mutually exclusive ways. You could do both. You could do a... Um, You know a scale That says like hey you know For your first bit this is not that much And then later on you could do a sliding scale Where you're like you know hey it's x percent If you do this much business And it's less or more if you do more You know um, I don't know There are a lot of options in between They can't charge and they charge 30% Yeah Yeah I, but that's
0: you know It just is very frustrating that, the, that that's not what the finger Has been put on you know Mm-hmm uh all right last but not least let's uh before we start the last segment let's talk about our third and final sponsor of the day this is one of my favorite companies that sponsors the show mac weldon mac weldon's mission is simple they make all your basics this is stuff like t-shirts underwear socks they make them smartly designed they make them nice to look at they make them comfortable they make them easy to buy and convenient to buy Uh, They wanted more out of their basics, and they always questioned how something so essential could be such a pain in, well, let's just say the the butt to buy. Uh, Their eureka moment happened when they were in a department store aisle full of brands that dominated their top drawer and surrounded by a mind-numbing assortment of underwear and socks. They realized consistent fit and quality had become a game of roulette. Are you really getting stuff that's the best fitting, best, most comfortable, or are you just buying a name brand that you knew? They started from scratch. They even engineered their own fabric. They made sure the design process was meticulous so you can count on the fit being the same each time. So if you get a pair of Mack Weldon, uh, let's say, T-shirts, and it fits great, you buy some more, they're all, all the ones you buy, they're all going to fit the same way. Meticulous about it. It's really a better product, almost certainly better than what you're wearing right now if you're not wearing Mac Weldon. It's a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, and premium fabrics. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of their stuff. I love it. It's always the first stuff out of the drawer when I'm putting stuff on. Um, I really like, in particular, I love their socks. They have terrific socks. Very comfortable. Uh, Long-lasting, too. A lot longer-lasting than a lot of other stuff that I've had. Very comfortable and very stylish, to be honest. They're very fun to buy. Uh, I've really gotten into in the last couple of years. I used for years, I would say for like 40 some years of my life. I think every single pair of socks I owned was either white, which was like 90% of my life or black, which was any time where I felt like, you know, white socks weren't dressy enough. Uh, now I've got all sorts of colorful socks and you know, I feel like it's uh start your day on a, on a brighter note. Uh, so not only did their stuff look good, feel good, perform well, last long, uh, but they have great prices too. And it's really easy to shop for the stuff. Uh, I've got everything. I've got the T-shirts. I've got their underwear. I've got the socks. You know what I like? I'll tell you what else I like, my favorite product from them. I like a V-neck T-shirt because then you can unbutton a button and you don't see the T-shirt underneath. I feel like if you're going to wear an undershirt, they should all be V-necks. I'm not quite sure why anybody doesn't buy V-necks, but all of my uh, undershirts are Mac Weldon. They all do fit the same. I've just got like a whole drawer full of identical Mac Weldon white T-shirts, uh, V-neck, and I love them. Uh, here's the call to action. You get 20% off your first order by visiting com M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N, macweldon.com, and enter this code TALKSHOW, no the, just TALKSHOW, and that'll save you 20% off your first order. Uh, they've also got a guarantee where if your first purchase, something doesn't fit right, they'll just, uh, they'll just let you keep it, and you pick a new size and go back. Just read all about it on their website. It's really great. They really want you to be happy with your purchase. So my thanks to Mac Weldon. Go to MackWeldon.com and remember that code, Talk show. All right, here we go. You, all right. lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody who listens to this show for a long time knows one of my obsessions is Star Wars. And I think most of you also know I'm a big fan of uh, Disney theme parks. Uh, or at least the Florida ones. Uh, Not that I'm not a fan of the other ones, but I've never been to any of the other ones. Uh, But my family uh, uh, loves going to the Disney uh, Orlando area theme parks. And anybody who follows either of those obsessions knows that Disney is on the cusp of opening major new uh, theme park lands in both California and Florida for Star Wars. And you, you lucky son son of a bitch, spent three days with them
2: i did i did it was uh it was interesting um it was sort of just like a, a three-day like mouth agape situ- situation
0: you so know? this was all in california because the california one is a yeah. going to open first and b right. is, is where imagineering headquarters is
2: Yes. So the way Imagineering works is they had their headquarters are in Glendale, um, kind of in a business park there, fairly unassuming group of beige buildings. Um, and then they have facilities in Florida that are largely about maintenance and storage. Um, but then they also have some research institutes like in Pittsburgh and a couple of other places. But their headquarters are there. So it was sort of a three-day jaunt through the process. This is, by the way, very unusual. For Disney, they typically do not do large press kind of you know pushes with this stuff or lengthy explanations of kind of what they're doing. Um, And you know, I I sort of it it was revelatory for a lot of people that had been there or that had been covering for the company for a long time. Some of them, you know, were there on this little press tour. Um, I was there's the um, Jermaine over at Gizmodo was on this thing. but he was—he's sort of their entertainment writer, um, you know, the kind of movies and entertainment and things like that. Is uh, a he's a great good writer. I, I like reading him. But outside of that, there was almost no tech press. Yeah. And the only reason that I was even involved with this because they—it was you know, it's Hollywood Reporter, uh, L.A. Times, um, Variety, you know, Variety exactly. Uh, it was several several theme park you know kind of oriented writers from like travel and leisure and things like that. Right. This is the this is the sort of people that were on this tour and the only reason i wasn't even involved is because i i do have a personal fascination with imagineering um how they kind of d- operate you know functionally as well as of course what they do you know and the the sort of business of building themed entertainment and robotics and um you know kind of uh, interactive experiences and world building and you know all of that stuff right it's just interesting to me and there's a lot of tech In that 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 is used in that um, industry, and even created for that industry, that is just not talked about because they don't talk to the people who care or would understand it or would, you know, care to interpret it for an audience or whatever. So I've spent about three years sort of getting to know those folks over there and convincing them that there are stories that they were not telling that needed to be told or needed to be examined. Um, Basically pitching them on this idea that, look, you're doing a lot of stuff in this arena, but you're not telling people about it. And my major pitch is, you need to hire roboticists and engineers, software engineers, and you know coders and all these people. But they don't know that you have hard problems to solve. And there's only there's no catnip greater to an right. engineer than a hard problem. So it is a that was basically my my crowbar that I used right. to kind of push at this. And that's how I ended up getting the invite. Basically, it was they were like, oh yeah, you know, we we're going to do this thing. We'd love to have you involved and all this stuff everybody else there was from the entertainment world so it was kind of fun being the only person there who's like okay yeah cool could you explain now the you know this cat this tool that you use why didn't you just use cad why did you use this you know in-house tool and all of this stuff so what did you do what did you do with nvidia to get gpus to be able to drive this display (laughs) yeah basically there was a lot of i mean i think you know not not to not to telegraph too much but or, or or put too much words in anybody's mouth, but there was a lot of side-eyeing from the engineers <laughs> who obviously wanted to talk about it right, to, right, the, right. to the PR people. Like, can we please, mm-hmm. <laughs> can I talk about this? Cause I've been living this for, for two years, you know, right. normally they don't let them talk about some of that stuff or they're not used to being asked about it at the very least. Right. So that was fun. Um, but yeah, the gist of it was to, to step back. It was a three day tour. We started out at Imagineering, um, or excuse me at ILM, uh, in San Francisco, most—I don't know if a lot of people know this—but their their main headquarters are, um, aside from Skywalker Ranch, which is a you know a different facility that does a lot of audio and stuff. Uh, ILM's main headquarters are in San Francisco on the Presidio. Um, they have a facility there that they share with Lucasfilm. Um, so we started out at essentially Lucasfilm, which is like sort of the bottom floor. Um, talking about the originations of the of the project and the storytelling and kind of how do you start building this world and all the decisions there and then we move to um, Imagineering in Glendale on the second day Uh, and that Imagineering is you know obviously where they build a lot of the animatronics Uh, they have a workshop there where they craft a lot of the in-house stuff that they do they have contractors too but a lot of the main you know key ones are um, done in-house And then on the third day, we actually went and did a site tour at uh, Galaxy's Edge, uh, which is the land that they're building onto Disneyland. Where where is uh, Star Wars Land? Glendale is just north of the uh, the sort of hills, uh, the Hollywood hills. Mm. Um, Basically, you've got Glendale, the hills, downtown L.A., L.A. proper, um, Venice, all of that. And then south of that is Anaheim where Disneyland is. So it's just north of L.A., essentially. Uh, It's still L.A. Did you guys
0: fly between days one and two? I mean, that's a long way because uh, ILM is is San Francisco and then the other two days are down in in southern California.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah, we flew. I I book all my own travel uh, when I go on these things. Like I don't I don't let Junkets pay for me. Um I'm I kind of a policy of ours we just don't don't right. really do it. Uh, every once in a while there's some weird thing where it's like, "Hey, this is our thing and, you know, just come," right? And it's like, "Okay, we'll disclose it." But right. by and large, we pay for our own travel. So, when we flew between the two, just speaking, <laughs> this is just a fun side note as an aviation nerd, but um flying between the two, we flew from out of Oakland Mm-hmm. Um, so we drove, we took a little bus from, um, Imagineering to, or excuse me, from Lucasfilm to, uh, to the Oakland airport. And I fly out of Oakland, but not regularly. Uh, I usually fly out of SFO or LAX, depending on where I'm going. Uh, if I'm not at, flying out of Fresno and Fresno doesn't have a lot of direct flights, um, to Oakland or a lot of direct flights to, um, definitely no direct flights to, uh, John Wayne. Hmm. Um, which is in Anaheim or the Burbank airport, which is the one that's closest to Glendale. But if you fly out of Oakland, you can get a JetBlue flight uh, out of Oakland to Glendale. And it's depending on the day, it can be as little as 70 bucks to fly. (laughs) Which is great, and that's what it was. That's what my airfare was. Full disclosure: my airfare was seventy dollars. I think that's what
0: I swear to God. I think that's what I paid for an Uber to get from SFO to San (laughs) San Jose last year. (laughs)
2: Exactly, exactly. And the cool here's the cool, really cool thing about it: JetBlue, because of you know carriage deals, right? Um, Carriage deals in air in airlines. Most people have experienced this at some point. You book through United, but you're actually flying on, you know some other carrier or you yeah. book through American, but you're on American Eagle and yeah. it, whatever. It's a carriage deal. It's basically like, Hey, we know we're not going to be able to fill these flights. So we, we, we're going to give you the seats to sell to, and we get a percentage or whatever. And so you basically are flying on some airline that you didn't actually book. Um, the majors don't cross over, but a lot of minor carriers cross over with the majors. So JetBlue has a carriage deal with, uh, jet suite, which is like one of these, uh, private jet yeah. sort of group deal things. I think that's, like you—that's the one uh,
0: Berkshire Hathaway I think has an investment in, or if not yeah, Berkshire Hathaway yeah, has an investment in one of them.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's like NetJets, JetSuite. Um, there's a bunch of them, right? Yeah. Um. So anyhow, long story short, I flew private <laughs> for seventy dollars. <laughs> was it, it nice? Was, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, it was. Hey, yeah, you have your own flight attendant. It's only you know 20 people on the plane it's very nice um you know it's not, definitely not all uh you know broken down and burnt out and everything it was certainly a short flight but it was pleasant um and it was 70 bucks so can't beat that and the best part of it this is the absolute best part the plane is whatever it's nice you know but it's a short flight the best part is that they have their own terminal so instead oh, of wow. going into the airport You actually go through the regular airport lane and then sort of circle around, and their terminal is uh, just directly adjacent to the airport, basically. Um, They come in, you come in, you uh, drive right up to the terminal, essentially, Um, hop out, hop into the the little waiting room there. You talk to the person at the desk. You're checked in in, like, 25 seconds. Um, You sit and have some snacks and some coffee and whatever that they have out there, and you get on your plane. And then when you land on the other side, you literally just pull up to a hangar and get out and go into the, go into the hangar, walk into through the hangar and then exit the hangar after a little waiting room and and get in your cab or car and boom you're gone. So it's pretty <laughs> nice. I amazing. think I might get rich now that I know this is how they. I <laughs> <travel. laughs> might try that for a while. Um, it was cool.
0: So. <laughs> One day at ILM, one day at uh, Imagineering, one day at the actual park, which is
2: set to open when? So the opening date is May 31st is for Disneyland. And then there's another date for Walt Disney World. I don't have it in my brain. Yeah, it's, but it's later on in the year.
0: I think it's September. Uh, well, let's call it September. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder how badly they had hoped to hit the uh, the May the 4th. There's always know, a big thing now wonder, that huh? Disney's actually had deals with Lucasfilm for a very long time. There's been the Star Tours ride since I think the 80s. Uh, August 29th. Sorry,
2: just want to interject. But yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, so they've been the deals for a while.
0: They've long had like Star Wars celebrations on May the Fourth because get it, May the Fourth be with you. Uh, I'm sure they tried to hit that, but. It's coming up,
2: so it yeah, must be- it is. And you know what? To be honest, so the the opening date is to finish up the opening date conversation. The opening date is May thirty first, and not uh, both attractions will not be open on that. And there's two two main attractions, right? And both attractions will not be open on that date. So they're pushing hard. I mean, they were working yep. around the clock when we were there. Um, one of the one of the tour folks were telling me, or uh, one of the construction managers was telling us that. He left one night at like 5 p.m., 6 p.m. And they got in the next morning at 8 a.m. And like a bunch of X-Wings had appeared. So they're working <laughs> they're working around the clock pretty much. The two places where I've noticed where construction moves really fast
0: is Disney, uh, where you can take like a week-long vacation and see progress having been made on something that's under a crane. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vegas, where stuff goes up in Vegas. And it's like, who knows how the hell they make it happen. But it's... It, it happens seemingly, at least to my perspective, happens pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, money, yeah, I think so, I, yeah,
2: put <laughs> enough money on it, well, it goes and, up fast.
0: And maybe there's less regular, maybe less traditional union hurdles than in like big East Coast cities like Philly and New York. Oh or, yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's more red tape, more red tape, or something like that. Like I feel like down in Orlando, Disney, not that they're cutting corners, but that they're you know, it, there's just not as much. Uh, urban bureaucracy you know and i think mm. vegas is sort of sort of more of a similar you know money talks sort of thing mm-hmm. but anyway right. it it can happen fast um it, just going meta for a second i do suspect i suspect th- i know there's a big overlap between apple nerds and disney nerds or fans whatever you want to call it but and and, and it. I also think, though, that there's probably a lot of people who listen to the show who, are, who who maybe are surprised that I'm a big fan of the Disney theme parks because maybe I come across as being a gruff curmudgeon who would think of standing all, line out in this, all day out in the sun going around on ostensible kiddie rides. It, it wouldn't be my bag. Um, and I'll just say it's it's hard to explain, but I would just say that... that the difference, if you've never, I think you had to have been to one of their parks to get it. Um, and maybe you have been and you don't like it. You know, I can certainly imagine if you really just can't stand being in lines, you're never going to like it no matter how, you know, how much you would otherwise. Uh, I just appreciate it as, as an appreciator of good design in general, or at least thoughtful design, because it's incredible. The, the, the depth to which they design things is just astounding to me. And that's the main reason that I'm a fan of stuff like this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of aspects to it. Uh, design is absolutely one major one for me. Um, you know, the technology that they are using more and more is sharing a lot of edges with you know the bleeding edge of mm-hmm. of what you know is out there in terms of robotics. Um, one of the big traf- uh, things that I've been kind of tracking for a long time. One of the big uh, sort of I don't know if you call it a trend, but um, topics is uh, the the arena of HRI or human robot interaction, because right. I do feel that HRI is going to become sort of an a essential learnings or essential investment for any major company uh, that has any sort of automated or or roboticized features or or processes, um, because it's already. I mean, in practical terms, just to give people like a grounding. HRI is used in the field of, of industrial robotics uh, to give people greater awareness of their robot coworkers, so to speak. Uh, that greater awareness comes with viewing that robot as an entity. Like, if you think of it as a personality or a thing that has a, you know, a, a bit of a personality or whatever, you're more aware of it, and so you're safer. You know, mm. if the robot arm is moving around in your workspace, you're more aware of it if you think of it as a, you know, a being, <laughs> an entity or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's kind of a weird kind of hippy dippy uh, uh, discipline in some ways. There's a lot of, you know, Berkeley professors <laughs> thinking hard about it and stuff like that, but it is absolutely you know clear that Disney is one of the for- foremost world leaders in HRI because of the way their learnings over decades of the way people interact with creatures and characters, uh, the way they interact and view animatronics, the way that, they you know, kind of partake in themed entertainment and that kind of thing so they're doing some fascinating stuff there and then on top of that you have this layer of world building yeah uh, that design that you were talking about you know where right. you're you're able to be ensconced in a in a thing that's trans you know transports you and the detail the attention to detail is absolutely right. fascinating and enjoyable i mean if you want to understand the level of detail that Disney engineers put into things or these Imagineers put into things, you just look at the next time you're at Disneyland or or Disney World, look at the railings. Right. Just, you know, look at the different railings they have throughout the park and the way they transition from one land to another and kind of ease you into this place that you're, you know, you're leaving one place and entering another and that kind of thing. So it's just cool stuff like that that I love. Um
0: I always like to say, I've used this at least some point on the show, but I always like to say that, so I first went to uh, Disney World in Florida, like about 12 years ago. Um, uh, And before I went, I was kind of looking forward to it, but I'd never been as a kid. My family never went to Disney World when I was a kid. And then I didn't go as an adult until our son was like two and a half or three or something like that. Um, I was looking forward to it. Uh, I had been in Florida before, but we went to, and this is like in my 20s or something, but we went to Universal instead because it seemed like more action-packed. I think it was probably the right thing to do because I was still at an age where I didn't feel too old to go on <laughs> the fastest roller just mm-hmm. known to man. <laughs> um, the thing is, is that I, until I went to Disney World, I thought the words amusement park and theme park were completely interchangeable you know, like, right. like street and Avenue or something like that. Whereas when I went to Disney world, I finally got it. I was like, Oh, I get what you mean by theme park. You know, like when you go mm-hmm. into, uh, Tomorrowland, you don't see any of the rest of the park. It's like, you're just entirely there, you know, and, and you use the words multiple times in this article on the, the galaxy's edge, the star Wars world controlling the sight lines. Um, and it works both ways. And it seems like one of the newer trends is controlling the sightways, the sight lines both ways, where the big thing is, like, once you're in the galaxy's edge, you're not supposed to see the red. You don't see Cinderella's castle. Or, right. Um, uh, or I guess that's actually wrong. It, in California, it's uh, uh, not Cinderella's castle. It's, Sleeping Beauty. uh, Sleeping Beauty's castle. That's how much mm-hmm. of a Disney nerd I am. How about that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: But that Good call. You, we would' have had uh, angry emails
0: <laughs> but that the the entrance is controlled as well, right, like uh-huh. at least in Florida, like as you 're walking into uh tomorrowland, you see tomorrowland it 's almost like beckoning to you to walk this way, right. whereas it sounds to me like the galaxy's edge thing it's sort of like you don't see anything and then you come through an entrance and it's boom, a big reveal
2: yeah one of the one of the things they talked about a lot was how to get people from there to here like what you know you're you're transporting these people from one world to another and they're guests on this planet which is also they say how they'll explain the fact that you're wearing crocs right like, <laughs> you're a visitor <laughs> um but, but the <laughs> the basic thesis is like hey we're gonna create this feeling of compression so you compress people down to a finite space Mm -hmm. and then expansion where you you open the world back up to them and so two of the entrances are essentially rock tunnels that are made to look like they've been laser cut into the rock you know by like the uh empire or or excuse me the the first order or the um resistance you know and that those rock carved or laser carved rock tunnels kind of compress down and bring you down to where you're going through a tunnel, and then you have you open up on a vista, which is like a frame of film. You know these frames of film are open up like, oh yeah, this is the first time you saw X, Y, or Z in the films. That's what we want it to feel like, right? Yeah. And then um, in the f- the topmost entrance, which comes in from uh critter country, which is over near kind of Splash Mountain in Disneyland. Um at least in the in Disneyland, of course, in Disney World there's only two entrances. But it is sort of wooded pathway, you know, that kind yeah. of meanders from one wooded country to a different kind of trees, and all of a sudden you're you're in this uh resistance encampment outside of town, so to speak. Yeah. So it's that those areas of transition that they create.
0: Yeah and they they've always that is again as a, an appreciator of the the experience design they've done that with the transitions between the worlds in the in the parks at least the better parks you know and the better transitions like they even do things like uh, as you're going from one to another and there's ambient mus- music playing the speakers are synced up between the two so that when you're in the part where you'd hear them both it it doesn't sound discordant they kind of go together and then mm-hmm. you're all of a sudden it's like it's just like this weird smooth transition where you're like at uh Disney World you can go from Frontierland to uh the Liberty uh Square World and you're transferring from the Wild West to sort of like you know this sort of it's mostly Philadelphia but sort of like a cross between uh Revolutionary War Philadelphia and Boston um but you never hear a transition in the music it it mm-hmm. just sort of works you know
2: Yep, exactly. And that that sort of uh, uh unknown or or gentle, unseen, transitional thing is what they specialize in. And yeah. that stuff takes work. I mean, it takes a, an enormous amount of uh thought about, you know, where to put speakers and it, they invented new technology to interleave the sound and all of that stuff. But they're taking basically You know, 100 years worth of work in this regard and putting it towards kind of making Star Wars uh, physical, which is a very, very interesting undertaking because it's such a well-known thing. You know, people have been seeing it for decades now. And so they know what it's supposed to look like and what it's supposed to feel like. That's a lot of responsibility. So one of the things that they've done is they
0: made the choice. And you even had quotes from somebody talking about it where they were like, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to pick one of the known planets like Tatooine or Hoth or, you know, Cloud City or something like that? Or are we just, you know, go with something new? And they went with something new. Uh, Batuu, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Mm -hmm. B-A-T-U-U, which I think was the right decision, Um, just so that they had the freedom to, you know, so that people wouldn't be uh, the cantina on Tatooine's entrance is actually on the left, you know, Mm -hmm. that they had the freedom to design everything the way they want. And they're not really uh, withholding to any one thing
2: yeah one of the other things I think I put this in there, but one of the other things that they mentioned about why they chose to do that is they wanted people to come in on a on an even footing, like mm. if you know Star Wars to a casual degree or or just barely from you know whatever absorbed media you you've you know seen of it, you should still have a good time there, so it shouldn't be like a you need to know all of the lore of this place before you can enjoy it or understand it. Right. And instead, it should be welcoming to all. Like, they're all, we're all starting our adventure together. Like, on day one, when everybody walks in, they're all on the same footing. They know just as much about this place and about what's going to happen here as anybody else, yeah. you know? And that's, that is hard to do with an existing location that, you know, somebody who's a more hardcore fan may just know everything there is to know about. Yeah. You know? And that
0: is sort of... Um I think it's the nature of the beast where star Wars is by the nature of the, the franchise as sort of, it's been implied since the very first movie in 1977, that it's a huge galaxy with a gazillion planets and different life forms. And it, you know, however many of the various aliens we saw in the cantina in the first star Wars movie, it was implied that, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg in this galaxy. Right. Um, compare and contrast with universal, which has the Harry potter franchise and has two in in florida they've got the the first one they opened at the one park was the hogwarts area which in my opinion isn't that great it's not a great entrance it's like the hogwarts look itself looks good from certain angles and looks really flat from other angles and they built it so that it it's like a beacon because people are not i mean this it's like the greatest i don't know how much universal spent to get the rights to that but it was great for them because when you go there half the kids are wearing like Harry Potter robes and stuff i mean that's mm-hmm. why people are going there so they built it you could see it from anywhere in the park um because they you know they know that that's what people are coming there to see you know people come in and they put right. it like in the back corner um but it's just not a great entrance but the second one they opened at Universal Studios is Diagon Alley, which mm-hmm. has a terrific reveal. It is amazing. Like, you're outside, like, across from all this other stuff that everybody knows from Universal Studios, and they've just built this lot that or this street that looks like current-day London. Um, very well done. And you're – honestly, and there's almost not enough signage. It's almost like we were like, what the hell is – where's the Harry Potter stuff? Like I get it that London is Mm -hmm. England and it's like, is this it? And then you go through a little thing that you don't, you know, you're like, I think we go through here and you see some, it doesn't never seems like there's hundreds of people coming in or out. It seems like just, you know, six people going walking through like around a corner you go around a corner and boom, you're in Diagon Alley. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a very specific place from the Harry Potter franchise and just a, a different way of doing it. It would be like if star Wars really was, Tatooine and and the uh, Surrounding area around the The cantina or something like that Mm -hmm. But on the other hand That would be so limiting because most of the Star Wars Worlds there's really not that much there Right like most of them are (laughs) Most of the planets we have seen in the movies are rather desolate Right (laughs)
2: They are, like, you know, and even like, like even if you go Tatooine, you know, yeah. well, that's a frickin desert with like one tiny little city, you know. <laughs> right. And all <laughs>
0: we really know about it is there's like a bar and there's a, a place to buy like spaceship parts.
2: Yeah. And not only that, but it's like literally all it's known for is being crap. Right. Like <laughs> Luke wants to leave. Everybody refers to it as a terrible place. You you don't want to go to a place that's known for being awful. Go go have lunch at Jabba's Palace. Right, right, exactly. And that's where you end up. You end up having to take really well-known places and thematize them, which is sort of anti this modern philosophy that Disney has about these parks, is that instead you should create this thing where you are really building a world and you're not just sort of like taking a theme and slapping it on something. Now, I will say that this project is a marquee project and has all the best people working on it. And they, this philosophy is very like well applied here. There's plenty of examples throughout the parks and projects that diehard Disney followers will be like, yeah, but they still chinsed out on X, Y, or Z, right? right? But in terms of this project, no expense spared. They're really going for it. And I think it's uh, no better, pro- no better property to do it with than Star Wars. Yeah. Um,
0: the other thing, too, is that they didn't... They didn't waste time when they. I've like always, at least in Florida, at the at the uh, Hollywood Studios park, they've had the Star Tours ride for you know I think since like the late '80s, at least the early '90s. Did a did a somewhat major upgrade a couple of years back where they didn't really change the ride mechanics, um, but totally upgraded the actual movie that you see in the in the thing, and it, it, much for the better. It's a much better, much better ride um, and then they added some Star Wars stuff while they're building this land in an area of the park it's like right next to the little mermaid <laughs> so it it really <laughs> it's it's not land themed at all, but I think that it right. it's like two extremes it's like what's the yeah. what's the fastest thing we can do to just keep some star mm-hmm. wars going in this park, and you know truth be told, the one thing. that I think is very different about the, what they're doing at Disneyland with the galaxy's edge in California and what they're doing at the Hollywood studios in Florida is effectively, they shut down half of the park in Hollywood studios. Like I, I, I think anybody who knows how much of the park has been shut down for the last few years, if you were going there and you only had time to go to three of the four parks, the magic kingdom, Epcot, Animal Kingdom and studios studios for the last few years should be the last one you went to because it really was ha- half shut down uh, mm. because they they closed a whole bunch of the major attractions to have this room to build this. Whereas, you know, Disneyland is still Disneyland. Right. Um, but you know, so they added a whole bunch of star Wars stuff in Hollywood studios in the meantime, in a totally unthemed area, sort of like the generic, middle of the park area you know and they have like stage shows and every like maybe two hours there's like a a storm trooper trooper parade led by uh captain phasma mm-hmm. uh, and they have some stage you know again like a, a cheese ball stage where they right. actually you know boba fett on stage which kind of <laughs> makes me <laughs> cringe um but then there is cool stuff and I can't help but imagine it's all a dry run for this experience and it's really going to be cool because they, they've been doing things where they'll just have two stormtroopers or first order stormtroopers mm-hmm. um, walking on parole. Just two, two guys in real first order stormtrooper costumes walking you know, side by side and then they'll just come up to people in the park. And like the one time I was holding a beer and, and the mm-hmm. guy just looked at me, pointed at my beer and he just said, watch it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like <laughs> they
0: just come up and interact with people. Right. And it'll, like come up to like little kids and say like do you have ID, show us identification. All right. Um and they just yeah, want to one see. One of the it.
2: interactions the troopers will do is that they will abduct you or arrest huh. you, so to speak. Uh, not abduct. <laughs> That's a bad word. Uh, <laughs> they're not abducting any children. Uh, but they'll arrest you, especially if you got like a kid, like they'll arrest your kid and they'll take them over to the side. And then um, they, they'll act like they're getting a call from a superior or, you know, whatever. They're like, oh, we're OK. Well, you checked out. You know, you're OK. Yeah. You can move along or whatever. Right. But they they do all of that. I mean they you know the the folks that do it well and that have fun with it the cast members that do it well they really use the the most <laughs> they get the most out of their tools so the tools that they give them are essentially you know switches inside the costume with like yeah. pre pre uh recorded voices they don't actually talk and so the the cast members that utilize those the best and really have fun with it they do have they get give great guest experiences yeah. you know my kid got arrested and she loved it You know, it was, <laughs> it was just like a highlight for her you know they well, detained her and uh, t- took a picture and all this stuff well that,
0: that's the other thing and like to answer my question from before, is why do I John Gruber enjoy it so much part of it I just enjoy the experience I do I just it, it's a fun place to be you let yourself go you have fun with your kid you buy some popcorn and stuff but I also there's a part of my brain that is constantly. It's like going to when I go to see Penn and Teller or some other magician, and I'm thinking, how the hell did they do that? And I mm. figured out like with the stormtroopers, the buttons are on their blasters, so they can right. hold the blasters, not like they're pointing it at you, but that they hold them, you know, to the side. But the the buttons are on the blasters, and they they it's just like a little mini keyboard where they can push mm-hmm. them, and then the pre recorded voices come out of their helmet. But and like you said, right. the ones who are good at it, it is amazing.
2: Yeah, it almost sounds like they, you know, they recorded it just for you, you know. Right. Um, but I can't, no, you know, I think there's a lot of that to come. They they didn't show us everything. That was right. one of the cool things that it's still it's still going to feel like a surprise to me in a lot of ways, you know, when I go even though I've I've talked to people for hours and hours and hours about it. Um, and only pu- I mean, I published <laughs> I published like stinking seventy seventy five hundred 7500 words on it, but even then I have pages and pages of notes, right? Cuz this is just like <laughs> I always think of that Austin Powers quote where he's where he's like, "Oh, that's not my bag, baby." Right? right. He holds up the book. <laughs> this right, kind of right. thing is my bag, baby. Right. Well, this, this is it. You know, it's like it's a confluence of everything that I you know that I find fascinating. You know, and um, I, I just I feel that there's a lot that they're holding back. A because they want you know they still want some surprises and whatnot. But a lot of it is going to come. In this, just the genuine immersiveness of this land. So they're yeah. they doing a bunch of things here that they haven't done before. One of them is that cast members um, have a bunch of different costumes to choose from so if they are a cast member that's say running the smugglers run ride which is the millennium falcon simulation um, they can choose their own garments to wear and then they wear a vest and a hat that identifies them as a sort of crew member uh, of Mm. this smuggling organization and so that that's their uniform but underneath it they have a set of a couple of dozen different basic pieces that you might wear as a citizen of Batu, and the citizens in the village, they get to go in to work every day and they choose from those pieces. So they say, Hey, my character wears this kind of pant and a vest and a shirt and all this stuff. It gives them some, you know, invests investment in the character and in the, the fact that they're going to be role playing. Um, And everybody in the land is going to be role playing, all the cast members are going to be role-playing yeah. as villagers. So you can ask them what's going on. Uh, you can ask them about the resistance and about the, the first order and what their feelings are. They might be really circumspect or they might confide in you, you know, that they're a sympathizer or whatever. And then, of course, you have the first order in their typical uniforms and, and the troopers, and then you have the resistance in the resistance uniforms. So it's, it's a nice mix of things that is very, very thematic and very in-world. Uh,
0: you know, there's a lot of companies that have that create euphemisms for employees. You know, like I forget, Walmart has something where they call people uh, associates is the word at Walmart. Um, and Disney's always called you know the staff, uh, the people that work at the parks, cast members. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds corny, and you know, honestly, in my opinion, like at Walmart, it's a true euphemism where you know. What's the difference between associate and employee? But at, at Disney, it's always been a bit more like performing. And there's some that are, you know, famous, you know, really are a true performance, like the uh, uh, the jungle boat captain, where you really are performing mm-hmm. for the whole thing. Right. Right. But it really does for seem like. For better or for worse. Right. <laughs> but I think it's fascinating that for all of the technological advances that are going into this Galaxy's Edge stuff um from but everything from materials to the way they make the animatronics and you go into detail about the difference between the old hydraulic system and the new electronic system and and how much more lifelike it can be that just the good old fashioned just way that they can sort of like to borrow a Walt Disney phrase to plus it is to mm-hmm. make the cast members more even more more part of the experience on a personal level that's right
2: yeah, yeah, and I think they're, they're ha- they have a they they there's always been a level of investment in you know the sort of experience of, of Disney that the cast member has, and some people burn out, some people are there for thirty, forty years, right? Uh, and I'm really gonna just divorce this discussion, even though you know it is interrelated. I'm gonna divorce this discussion from you know, how Disney treats its cast members and whether or not it right. could treat them better and all of that. Right. Because they're, there's certainly, you know, employees that have a lot of, <laughs> they give a lot of joy throughout the year and throughout the, have, have throughout the decades um, just through small interactions. And they're sort of in empowered in some ways to do that. So they, you know, my daughter has like bought a toy and lost it immediately. And they, they just replaced it for her. They're like, oh, yeah. you know, we don't, I don't even need to see a receipt here. You know? Yeah. She's like, oh my God, I lost, you know, I lost this, or, or this broke, or it's like, here, just take this, you know. And that kind of stuff is obviously corporate policy, right? Let's not right. It. but it's it's imbued, like they invest this idea in the CMs that they are there to create an experience for people that is, you know, yes, it's money, it's time, it's travel, but you know, you forget. Like uh, this, may be the only time that this person goes to Disneyland in their entire childhood, and they'll remember it forever. Like I wasn't a Disney kid; my parents right. didn't know about it or like it or even care. You know, so much. It, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't even on my family's radar. It really was. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, my dad was like, you know, let's go loot a shipwreck. Let's go, right. <laughs> let's go let's right. go to the beach, you know, and and all of that stuff. And that's fine. You know, I, it's not like I was you know i'm complaining it just wasn't a part of my landscape however like one time when we were on a travel to somewhere else they were like hey we got a day let's take him to disneyland right Um, we've never been you know he's never been let's go and like i have a picture of me and i remember it i still remember the smell of it i would think it was like nine or something and our, i have a picture of me on my dad's shoulders with a um a couple of figurines like a C-3PO and an R2. This is just after Star Tours had opened. Hmm. And... I remember it and it was like it stuck with me forever, right? And in some ways cemented my love of of Star Wars in a way, you know, because mm. it was like Star Wars in real life to, yeah. of its day, right? Yeah. Star Tours. And then also of, of the parks, it created this feeling in me. My wife, on the other hand, went to Disneyland a lot and loved it and is sort of a Disney freak and I did not grow up that way. I grew into, you know, sort of an appreciation for the company and what, what he had created, what, what the organization had created uh, and its philosophies much much later, but that may be a, a revelatory or or you know massively impactful experience for a person. And so you're putting a lot you're putting a lot on an employee that's not paid a whole lot for what they do, and they they see a thousand people a day, ten thousand people a day, and they're you know whatever. But some small interaction that they may give will absolutely make or break. You hear about these things over and over and over again. Oh, they were you know it was the true Disney experience or like, this is why you go and all of this stuff. And it's the CMs that make that. And so I'm really, really happy to see them giving them sort of better tools and, and a greater reason to invest in that sort of interaction with people and all of that. That's fun to see. Yeah.
0: And I really think it goes toward making the whole area, the attraction as opposed to the area is just sort of a central point where you Ping pong around to various attractions. I mean, there's very clear. Mm -hmm. You just look at the look at the map when you go to the park, and there's a very difference between the older themed areas and the newer ones. Where the older ones you'd go to Fantasyland, and there's 12 different attractions to ride on. You know, or Mm -hmm. or, you know what what most people would call rides, what they call attractions, and because some of them aren't actually rides, so but. You know, things you get in line for and wait for a while, and then you experience Mm -hmm. them. Whereas the new ones seem to, you know, like the, um, and you mentioned it, you know, that that the Pandora World of Avatar, which is at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Florida, was sort of, I'm sure James Cameron wouldn't want to hear it, but it's maybe sort of a dry run for the Star Wars stuff. Or Mm -hmm. at least it came first in terms of inventing this whole world. And it seems like they're doing the same things where all of the food when you're there is as though you're in that world and in that camp on pandora you know like the mm-hmm. the beer is literally there's like a green one and a purple one and, right and i there's one yep. that i like and one that i really don't like <laughs> i always you forget i
2: never remember, which I, is I which. Never remember. <laughs> that's funny uh, yeah exactly all the food is themed all of right. the and it has a you know people may you know roll their eyes or whatever but all the food has a backstory like this right. just isn't ribs it's like You know, kudu ribs or whatever—it's like the animal that Jar Jar rode, and you know everybody enjoys killing and eating anything that has to do with Jar Jar. But um, you know, I think that there's there there ways to do that where you honor the fact that you're doing a little world building, and yes, it may on any individual level it may seem silly, but and it adds up to something that is greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, the, the merchandise, for instance, barely has any labeling or tagging. Yeah. You know, they just have just enough of a tag to where they can charge you for it, and you yeah. know it's actually for sale. Um, outside of that, it's extremely minimal packaging whenever possible. It's all themed to the shops. So, like, you have a creature shop owner. Everything sold in that shop is a creature, and every creature does a little thing. You know, like, it makes noise or does a, you know, creature, a, a world or Star Wars authentic uh, noise or activity, you know? So they're just, they're taking it serious. They're really just going all the way with it. We'll see how much they dial it back, you know, later, uh, or how much they change, because these things don't always launch and stay that way, as we know. But uh, it's certainly an interesting bet.
0: So one of the things Disney's always been good at is, like I mentioned sightlines before, where from point A, if you're not supposed to see world, the other world, you don't see it. The other thing they've always been really good at are perspective tricks, uh, forced mm-hmm. perspective where, you know, Main Street, USA looks like a two story town in turn of the century, America, turn of the last century America. And the buildings really aren't two stories tall. They're like one and a half stories tall. And they do tricks to make that second story look like a full second story from the, full, you know, three, four, five, six foot height of an adult or a small child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you really, really get up close and look at them, and you can kind of see, ah, that's not as big as I thought. The one thing that is mind-blowing about the Pandora in Florida is you get up real close to, like, those mountains and rock formats, and it's like, what the hell is this? Like, how the hell did they make something this big? And, <laughs> right. and how does it not tower so high that you see it from everywhere? Mm-hmm. Like, how in the world is this mostly hidden from the perspective of the other areas of the park and you can get right under the base of it and you just feel dwarfed by it? Is, is some of the stuff in the galaxy's edge like that?
2: Yeah, uh, the sense of scale is absolutely there. So the the towers, the rock towers themselves are about 135 feet tall at their highest point, um, which is not small. You know, uh, obviously, but it is the maximum height essentially yeah. that they can build them due to aviation rules in, right. in right. LA. Right. Uh, similar to the, it's the, it basically the same exact height as the uh, castle. Right. Yeah. So they can't yeah. make it any higher. Um, in addition to that, though, you also have. Perspective at work. So, like right. some of the domes which are layered, you know, back to front with each other, the domes in the back that look like they're far away are in fact only like a foot behind the other one, but they're smaller, right? So, they're still using a lot of their same old tricks because, you know, those work. They're, they're tricks based on the human mind, right? Yeah. Um, but they they absolutely are doing things with scale there that they've never done before. Right. Like the buildings are bigger, the sp- public spaces are larger than any other land. It's 14 acres total that includes ride space. And you is know that, what they is would that call both, backstage. Is that both
0: Florida and California? They're both yes. 14 acres? Okay.
2: They're, om- they're both parks are almost exactly identical in terms of layout and size Mm. about the only major difference structurally is that the florida park has two entrances Mm. and the uh new one has three so um or the new not new one but the uh, disneyland one has three yeah um but yeah it's the so walking you walk into the land we, we walked in it's still very much under construction right so with that caveat the scale is enormous. I mean it's immense. This the queue for the resistance ride is um it's the longest I've ever seen. It's the first one I've ever seen with a bench in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's and uh, one of the one of the engineers viewed that as like a, uh, a imagineers viewed that as like a a personal win because uh, he's like yeah. I'm a dad and I re- I've never had a line with a bench in it and so I'm right. really happy I got this line with a right. bench in it because uh, a lot drive. of times a lot of times when you're the
0: dad the problem isn't you the dad and it's not you the kid it's the fact that you're the dad with the kid on your shoulders. <laughs>
2: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and come back with
0: scoliosis right that's where the bench can really help everybody Mm -hmm. you know
2: yeah and we're all in this together you know we're all trying to make it through um but yeah the the sense of scale is is there it's you're gonna you're gonna feel it like this is a real living big city or big village that i'm in um the buildings are full height they are not you know scaled down and it doesn't feel like when you get close like oh okay i see what did here you know it's it's actually full height um a lot of the uh park is or a lot of the land has been built to a way where the one of the big problems has always been like seeing what's going on and so they built the entire thing on a tiered structure which they've never done with any other land and there's some other lands that have like a transition like you're going from here to there up to down or whatever but never in this sort of like sloping tiered way they essentially built it so that you're always looking over people at something. Hmm. So that there's the performers, for instance, or the cast members, when they come out from backstage, they have their own entrance from backstage directly to where they're going to do their thing like say repair an X-Wing that's you know sitting there in need of repairs or you know maintain the Falcon or whatever if it's Chewy, for instance Um, they they can come right in from backstage they can come into an area where they're elevated so people can see them from all around you know you don't have to you're not crowding in to see what they're doing or to try and get a glimpse of them so they built this and it seems all logical now but none of the other lands have been built this way and it's always been a big problem for CMs like they got to get from backstage to where they are you know, where they're performing or whatever they're doing. And there's always that awkward thing where they're walking and people are trying to see, you know, to meet them or stop them or say hi or take a picture. And they're like, yeah, I got to, you know, you got to skedaddle. Um, and then when they're there, you you got to wait in line to see him. You can't see him, you know? So there's, there's lots of interesting things like that, that they did, um, which is, which is a first for any land. So, but like, I will tell you mm. the moment you turn the corner And you see the full-size, 100-foot-long Falcon for the first time, I I literally – I said bad words. And it wasn't (laughs) – I don't generally do that much like when I'm taking a press tour. I'm not like – you know, Apple showed me the iPhone. I'm like, cool, this is neat. You know, oh, what does this do? You know, I'm not like (laughs) – I don't fall over in awe. You know what I mean? But when you see the Falcon for the first time in real life, it is – it's intense. It's intense. People are going to lose their minds.
0: You came here in this. You're braver than I thought. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Uh. Everything <laughs> runs through your mind. You know, all the <laughs> things run through your mind, huh. and and it's it's cool, man. They're going to have it set up to where, it, like, you know, it'll make engine noises. Like they're trying to start it up and repair and it. Pop, it's going to pop feel alive. steam and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But,
0: um, so. Do you know what what are they doing with the Star Tours ride? Is I, I can't imagine they're getting rid of it. I mean, in Florida, is that going to be within the confines somehow?
2: Well, no. So they're not moving either one of them. They're staying where they are. That's their current. That's their current statement, right? So I don't know what their actual plans are. Sometimes they're different than what they say. Right. But what what they said very carefully is there are no plans this time to move them. So you know they're staying where they are. Yeah. Um, they're not moving. They're staying. You know the Disneyland one is staying in Tomorrowland. Yeah. Um, so they're just going to keep them there. I mean, you know, what can you do? It's either that or you, or you move them, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's not a, that's not an easy task. No. Cause so I think they're basically just trying to open this thing and see how it goes.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things it seems to me, one of the things that bugs me as a Star Wars nerd. Let me get a little Star Wars nerdy here and not Disney nerdy, but one of the things That's that true. bugs me about the new Star Wars, the updated Star Tours, is that you go in that you're in you know the the basic premise is you're in a uh, like a commercial sightseeing uh shuttle and things go wrong and somehow you're you're on a you know, a mission a racing away from the Empire or the First Order or something. And You hit hyperspace and you go somewhere and you go somewhere that's from one of the movies and you're getting shot at and all sorts of danger and cool things. And then it's like you hyperspace again and you have another adventure from one of the other movies and then you hyperspace again and you finish up. And then it's, you know, there you go. Get the hell out. You know, next (laughs) next group's coming in. And it's cool because they mix it up and it's randomized. And so you can go twice and hopefully you'll have the luck that you won't. You know, you might you might go three times and not see the same segment twice. That's right. Uh, which is really nice. But as a Star Wars nerd, it drives me nuts because the whole ride's premise is that you're the passengers on a ship having a continuous adventure that is separated by three jumps to hyperspace. But the segments come from <laughs> three different trilogies that take place 20 to 30 years apart. So you're apart. Tra-
2: traveling through time and space, everything at right. once. Like
0: yeah. all of a sudden yeah. you're on Hoth and the Empire Strikes Back and then you're back, you know, on the... Uh, the Back of the clones, or something like that, mm-hmm. and then you wind up in you know, uh, you know, the new trilogy with Rey and and those characters, and it makes right. no sense at all. It mm-hmm. gets you know, I get it that you know the original Star Tours because it was from the eighties, they just stuck to the original trilogy, and while it was not as good a ride, at least it made chronological sense in the Star Wars right. universe. And I get that they they didn't want to pick one trilogy uh you know for the update cuz mm-hmm. which one would you pick uh and they certainly weren't going to not have it updated for the new movies as they come out which would sure. you know which would so i get why they did it but it bothers me as a star wars nerd what i like mm-hmm. from your description of Batu the whole land is it seems like the land takes place in a consistent consistently in the new trilogy the latest third trilogy right. timeline
2: Yes, it's not. It's not around a sp- at a specific movie or during a specific movie. It is a, in that era, right? right? That's the way they refer to it. Yeah. So they're. I don't believe they're going to know of things going on, you know, in that in the movie timeline. Um, And Batu has already been integrated, as Disney does, uh, in many of its books. And uh, it's mentioned in the movie already and all of that stuff, you know. Um, But it is a it is going to be a part of the universe. And you're going to be in this place while the movie trilogy era is happening, but not at a specific time.
0: No, but I think that's the right way to do it, right? I yeah. think that putting it in that era. Just
2: specific enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're within a, the year or two that, you know, the, the mo- span of the movie happens. Yeah.
1: The and,
0: movies I, happen. and I think it's the right move, you know. I'm, of course, in the most nostalgic for the original trilogy, but I feel like the kids of today are going to be the most excited about the latest trilogy. And so it makes sense to put it there. All right. Let me get really Star Wars nerdy on you here. And one of the characters that's an animatronic is Hondo Onaka. Now, I Mm -hmm. remember him because I watched the animated Clone Wars series, and he was a major recurring character. And it sounds like he's a really cool animatronic. But from your article, Hondo is now the proprietor of the Onaka Transport Solutions and has been loaned the Millennium Falcon by Chewie for some, quote, deliveries. All right, Mm -hmm. let me just say there is no way (laughs) Chewbacca is loaning the Millennium Falcon to anybody, let alone to Hondo Onaka. (laughs) I got a real problem. I got a real problem with that. (laughs) Why isn't Chewie flying the thing? And then the next character you talk about is one of my all-time favorite little characters who who in the world knows why I knew his name because he's got like two lines. But Neen Num, who Uh most people will remember, was Lando's co-pilot for the Falcon during the climactic battle scene in uh, The Return of the Jedi. Now mm-hmm. Neen-Num is on the other ride though. He's on the Resistance attraction, right? Right. Well, they should have put Neen-Num as the guy who flies the falcon because he uh, it, at he least he
2: has piloted the and falcon. And
0: Chewbacca maybe would loan it to lean, you know, let Neen-Num.
2: <laughs> right. Well, uh, there is a book <laughs> that explains <laughs> that explains <laughs> why. <laughs> uh why he has and they they did give it to us it's actually a, a children's book and i gave it to my daughter but um it, it explains why they this is happening you know yeah. why he has lent in the falcon so there is some sort of in universe explanation but that said i completely understand where you're coming from it's like wait what <laughs> <laughs> uh, i will say the animatronic is super stellar though oh, um yeah. it's it's very 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 smooth uh, i think the you know it's as far as um levels of uh complexity the the shaman is still uh, above it you know yeah. in terms of how much it can do and that's and you know, the shaman is, the,
0: sh- the shaman is is a pandoran a native pandoran right. on, on the uh navi river ride over in pandora
2: Exactly, yeah. And that Navi Shaman is incredible animatronic, absolutely incredible. Um, we we had the the head a couple of years ago at one of our robotics events, just the head, and they de-skinned it for us. It was super, super cool to watch up close. Well, but even when, when you're watching the ride, it's amazing. Let me say this. I've been on
0: the ride, and let me take the devil's advocate position and say sure. I, I totally appreciate it. And But part of this is because I read your article and knew it going mm-hmm. in, the fact the Face and head is amazing, but the whole animatronic as a whole is a bit static. I mean, I guess mm, that's mm-hmm. the, a shaman isn't supposed to move, but it, right. it's it makes sense that almost all of the the amazing you know look how amazing this is is all in the face. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing I'll say, well, let me ask you this: the two so the two attractions, there's the uh, resistance ride, and then there's the Falcon ride. It sounds from to me from your description that neither one of them is really the a ride and the b ride they They both seem like a rides,
2: yeah, they would both be considered an e ticket in the yeah. old parlance right they absolutely double e ticket if if that existed right because yeah. they're they're absolutely a a high Uh, level of you know world building high level of theming um, you know intense amount of work that went into them however the rise of the resistance ride is significantly bigger yeah In terms of the size, length, uh, complexity, all of that. It's the first ride that Disney has done of its kind, I believe. And the Falcon ride is essentially like, what if we built Star Wars with Star Tours with today's technology Mm -hmm. and made it interactive, which is not a small feat. You know but it it's it's also known it's a known quantity you know, um, whereas the rise of the resistance is a new thing. Yeah. there is guest interaction by cast members during the ride there is you're on foot you're you're on a a vehicle that quote unquote flies, then you're on a riding vehicle like you're in multiple venues Death you, know, Star you travel hanger? from place Was it a to place. Death Star hanger. Uh, not a Death Star hangar, but a uh, a Star Destroyer hangar. Star Destroyer hangar. Yeah, and so you know, you're in a hangar. You're you're flying on a Resistance vehicle. You're in a Resistance base. You're in a in a cell like a detention cell. You know, you move from place to place. None of this happens. You know, in right. on a ride, right? right? So it is a it is an experience in a way that is different. So yeah. I don't think that either one of them necessarily are. You know, oh, this is the A ticket this is the B ticket. They're both going to be incredibly popular, and right. I think just as popular to different people who want different things. Like if your dream has always been to fly the Falcon, right. I mean, there's no substitute. You know, I,
0: you can't see this on an audio podcast, but I just raised my hand.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I just raised
0: my hand, and my eyes are watering up a little bit. Um,
2: right, and that you know that sense of w- <sighs> Right. If you're the gonna, if the I mean, less, you're have, if you're gonna if, be yeah if the, the less ex- way.
0: the less expansive of the two rides is the one where you fly the Millennium Falcon. That's <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's the that's the like oh cool we'll do that too. Then yeah, you're in good shape. All um, right. So the difference the, between Pandora have you have you Ooh. ever been there? Have you ever been to the Florida parks? You know,
0: no, uh-uh. no. So you've never no. been to the Florida ones, and I've never been to California. Well,
2: exactly. So we yeah.
0: we go every year. Uh, so I've been to the Pandora a couple times, and the the two they, they do this. It's the same sort of formula. It's an all encompassing world, surprisingly big. All these rocks and and very immersive. Sure. All the food, all the merchandise. Um, there's all sorts of stuff when you're not in a ride that's really technically impressive. One of the things in the the Pandora world that they have is you know how in that in that Pandora universe the 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 humans have these um, uh, big robots that they ride in, you know, That's like, right. you know, they have one, they have a real one. Mm-hmm. I mean like that there's a real guy in and it walks around and then he takes, you know, he'll stop and he'll take questions mm-hmm. from kids about who'll ask, you know, all in universe, like, uh, you know, how high can you jump? And he's like, well, this, this, this model, the one I'm in is actually set to a low power mode for the safety. Cause we know there's a bunch of you around here, <laughs> right, but if right, I, w- right. if we, if we turned it on, I could jump about five feet in the air.
2: Uh, yeah. Gotcha.
0: It, you know, and it, but it's super, but you, it, the cool thing about that sort of thing is they're making it, there's so much more fun that you can have that you never knew you were going to have that you're not waiting in line for it. You're just there. And all of a sudden this guy in a robot suit comes out, you know, um, but the the flight of passage attraction, they have two. So part of the formula: two two attractions, big land. The flight of passage mm-hmm. ride is the greatest theme park attraction I've ever been on in my life. It is, and and my wife and son were in unanimous agreement. It is mind blowingly immersive. I almost don't even want to say anything, you know, on the show other than it really does feel like you're flying around Pandora. It is, mm-hmm. and, and the scope is amazing. The scale. It's it's just incredible. Um, the Navi River Passage is like a boat ride, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? It's, right. It
0: is it it's it's like you're on you know a really nice version of it's a small world. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: You know it, it it is not it it there's very clear difference between the two. Which one is is the bigger attraction? Which if you can only do one, which one you should do. Whereas it seems like in Star Wars, it's it's a lot closer call.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe I don't want to. I didn't. I don't have any inside info on this, but I think maybe they know that, right? Right. Like maybe they they understand that the boat ride is awesome, but if you're going to do Star Wars and you're going to promise this interactive, you know, kind of immersive world, that has to extend to the rides too. Yeah, and it really from. I wasn't able to ride the completed ride because it's literally not completed. But from what we were able to see of the experience, that is true of this. Yeah. It is not, you don't sit passively on a boat or on a car and let it, you know, R- travel you over through you. this. Right. Yeah, you just, you just, you're not sitting there just watching a uh, a bunch of animatronics do their thing. You know, yeah. that's not what this is about. It's, uh, you know, multiple characters you're interacting with, multiple experiences that you get to that you get to take part in you feel like you are part of the universe you're you know the the adventures that you're having are in universe and sort of uh you know feel like they could be in the movie you know that kind of thing yeah. and they're using a bunch of different tech to get it done so that's not this isn't the same deal as that it's not like hey we're taking an existing ride thing we're putting a new theme on it and we're we're putting some cool animatronics in front of you. It's not yeah. that.
0: So the bay and the basic description of the Falcon ride seems so cool. It's like you're in the real Falcon. It's the room. You know, there's the chessboard. It's it's all to scale. It's like you're really there. And then in groups of six, they load you in, and you're in the Millennium Falcon cockpit. And then everybody gets roles. Like there's two pilots and two gunners mm-hmm. and two. I forget what else there were, but you all have things to do, and it actually really does interact. With the result of of what you get, like you have to push buttons at the right time and you can get like, you know, I I guess that no matter what, like the Millennium Falcon isn't exploding and,
2: (laughs) you know, look, your ride, they, they were very explicit in that your ride would always complete. So, you're always going to be the mission, the Falcons mission will always be successful, I think is the phrase right. that they use, right? right? They don't want anybody getting, you know, waiting hours to get this ride. Some guy doesn't do his piloting job out the gate and you crash immediately right. and you have to get off. Or, right.
0: And I know it's laughable for the next 10, 15, 20, probably 20 years that there's going to be an empty seat, <laughs> but, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> Thirty years from now, when Star Wars Galaxy Edge is no longer the you know the main attraction, yeah. and it's the end yeah. of the night, and you get in, and there's only three of you, and there is nobody in the gunner's seats, you're not going to get you know you're not going to get blown up.
2: That's um, right. That's at, right. What at, they said is instead, you have two pilots, two engineers, two gunners, and so each person has a role. So if the pilot does their thing at the right time, you execute a maneuver and avoid a Tie Fighter's fire. Oh. Great. If you get if you don't do it in time and you get hit now the engineer has work to do right? right and so they can fix they can put out the fire that was caused by the tie fighter blast uh or by the blaster blast they can um you know your your gunner can shoot it down if he shoots it down late maybe you get you know etc yeah. and they we're working together so, so they come through battered but you're going to get through.
0: So there's a ride at Epcot called Mission Space, and the basic idea is that you're on like a, a experimental mission to Mars, and there's four of you in each little thing, uh, and there's like a, it's a similar, or it, you know, obviously a similar thinking. You know, one of you's the pilot, one's the mission commander, one's the engineer, and one is a navigator or something. And there's points. In it, where you're supposed to flip switches and stuff. And, and much like you said about the Falcon stuff, you've got all these switches to flip and you push buttons and they beep and they bloop and they all feel like real, like NASA quality switches. And (laughs) they must be because they've been there for 10 or 15 years at this point and they're all still in working order. You know, like they're all like serious industrial grade switches. But it's cool because you can start playing with them before the ride starts. Like you you load in, you put your seatbelt on and lower your your harness. And then you can sit there and like bleep and bloop and, and flip all these switches. But then there's a certain part in the mission where you're supposed to do stuff. Well, if you don't do it not one thing changes <laughs> like you can <could> do everything <laughs> wrong you're like right it, absolutely nothing changes it makes you feel like something changes and maybe if you're a young enough kid and you're not really paying attention you might think you did something but having been on it numerous times there is no um not not one iota changes of what you actually see on the screen yeah yeah
2: so it's that's cool, not very empowering no <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, but it makes sense because it seems like that's an easier way to make a ride where you're loading hundreds of people, in, mm-hmm. you know, an hour. Whereas to of have course. it actually be interactive is seems like a genuine technical breakthrough.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, it, they, you know, each particular each um, cockpit. Uh, of which there are multiple, obviously, to get you know. Otherwise, you'd pe- be there all day. <laughs> six people at a time. six people at a time. I was like, oh, hey, we're gonna. Seventy-five people can get on this today out of ten thousand. Um, I love that you each... asked how many
0: cockpits they have, and they they wouldn't answer. That's exactly. No, they wouldn't, wouldn't tell me. That's exactly <laughs> the way that Disney is like Apple, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Like if I'm like, oh, cool, yeah, how many how many transistors are like? Does that really matter? No. <laughs> um, but yeah the the multiple cockpits basically enable them to load multiple people, but each of those cockpits has to be a completely independent projection system that reacts in real time, so it's rendering everything in real time as you make your decisions, yeah. so each one has to have its own rendering pipeline and basically render farm attached to it um, that can make it happen.
0: I can't wait. I'll be flying the Falcon. Uh. <laughs> oh, I know I'm going to wind up stuck being the engineer
2: how long do you think the wait's going to be for, for pilot <laughs> you know I don't know you do you they, wait uh, for uh, the front right uh, they didn't say they, they didn't say but uh, that, that's good you know okay stand over here and wait with these other 10,000 people that want to be the pilot and sit in the front <laughs> uh, do you think they'll make them sit differently a lot of
0: times at Disney they don't really let you wait for the front like that like they just kind of I don't yeah, know, I,
2: don't know. I've, I'm, I think most of the coasters they let you wait for your spot but right. I don't know yeah it's going to be that's going to be a Rochambeauing, I think, amongst your <laughs> pilot group, your flight group. If you go, go in groups of six, because then you you guys can come to a, a gentle person's agreement.
0: <laughs> All right. That is fantastic. I can't wait to see this myself, uh, although I won't be able to see it this summer because in Florida it won't open till September or something. But I'm still looking forward to it and i absolutely loved your article and honestly came away from your 6000 word well illustrated piece with so many questions
2: <laughs> uh, yeah
0: i thank you as always for your time you are uh, at panzer p a n z e r on on the twitters mm-hmm. and everybody can read your fine work and the work of your staff at uh, techcrunch.com anything else you want to you want to mention
2: No,
1: I think I'm good. All right. May the force be with you, Matthew. I really appreciate
2: it. You as well.